Alice Siebel is here. Her first novel, The Lovely Bones, was published earlier this year. It tells a story of a 14-year-old girl who is raped and murdered by a serial killer who lives in her neighborhood. The book has sold over one million copies and is currently number one on the New York Times bestseller list. The New Yorker magazine calls it, quote, a stunning achievement. I am pleased to have Alice Siebel at this table for the first time. Uh, and I also should say that many people believe that, that, uh, uh, that this is the best thing they've read in a while. Um, and, and the one thing I will not ask you is, are you surprised by all this? I mean, <laughs> that, if there's anything self-evident, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if there's anything self-evident, is that no one could expect, you know, writing a first novel and they would have this kind of, of reaction. Okay, if you had heard this five years earlier, could mm -hmm. you have done this? I mean, has anything happened to you in the last five years that made you more able to hear the voice, to uh, to, to to listen to the voice, to I to think project the voice. I think I, I wrote my memoir, Lucky, um, which is about my own rape right. and trial, which was something, I mean, I, I, if I had not written that book, I would not have written this book. I started this book first, um, but I needed to get my story out, and as soon as I got my story out and away, then Susie could be, you know, kind of born aloft and really have her own way. I mean, you know, she's bossy to the extent that I feel that she's responsible for me even writing my own memoir, because she didn't want my stuff clouding up her own book. How much have you talked about your own personal experience in the subject of rape? Um, I've talked about it a fair amount. Um, not, I certainly haven't talked about it as much as I've talked about uh, Alice. I mean, I talked about uh, about Susie. Right, exactly. Mm. Um, but you know, I've, I did a thing like last year for the uh, Brooklyn DA's office and the NYPD. And uh, what's the thing? Uh, <laughs> um, like they, they, I was a keynote speaker yeah. at a, a a group, you know, convention or meeting that they had uh, here in Manhattan, and. Uh, um, so I've done things like that. Um, now, is there a connection between your being raped, mm -hmm. your experience, mm -hmm. and hearing Susie's voice? I think in that way that anybody who survives something where other people don't survive it, you always think about those. I mean, you know, the, the easy thing to call it is survivor guilt. I mean, you, you always think about those people who didn't survive similar experiences. And so... Uh, for years, I've been obsessed with the idea that there are so many dead girls that um, their photos are in the paper, but you never know anything about them, and they've lost their voice because they're dead. And so, um, I definitely think I'm, I'm, you know, that's an obsession or, of mine or a drive of mine. So there's a connection. What's the drive to to give them a voice? Yeah. Your mem memoir was about uh, my memoir is about my rape yeah. at 18 and the trial that followed it. So, and, you know, growing up, uh, a lot of people have also said who've read it, it's also a, an interesting journey of a writer, like how one becomes a writer. Um, your memoir. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it, it, it's also, for instance, I had a wonderful teacher, uh, uh, actually Jeffrey Wolf's brother, Tobias Wolf, um, as a yeah. Syracuse student. And I saw him right after I had seen the, uh, the rapist on the street. And, you know, I went to report that I wasn't able to come to class because I was going to have to call the police. <laughs> Um, and uh, he at the time, which I didn't know until years later, was working on his memoir, This Boy's right, Life. Right. Um, and he, the only thing he could tell me in that moment was, you know, try if you can to remember everything. Um, and so, you know, that's a little seed that he planted that I could go back to years later and think he had a purpose for that. And, you know, uh, and he was giving me what he could. And, and in a way that, that uh, you know, that was something that helped me as a writer, you know, to have that example of that person who was trying to remember difficult times in his own past and make work out of it. What happened after you saw the rapist? 
Um, uh, basically, he was arrested. We went into the trial uh, process, things like that. But, you know, you drive around in the car with the cops and look for him to see if he's still in the area. And, of course, he never is, um, you know, the usual. <laughs> yeah. the, I, it's just, it, I, don't, I haven't read your memoir, so I'm, right. you know. It, but, and, and it, it's, what's the title of it? Lucky. Lucky, as yeah. you said early in this conversation. Right. Is it destined to the success of this book to um, influence a reprint of that book? Uh, well, Lucky never came out in paperback. So, and now so it's, it's in now paper. Paperback. So, so you can get this and get that in yeah, paperback. So, but, but that's a... Should that's, they be read together, you think? Um, I can't be the judge on, on that. Um, uh, really, I think they serve different purposes, and I certainly wrote them in, in very different ways. Mm. So. You have said somewhere that you engaged in self-destructive habits mm -hmm. for 10 years it wasn't before you were able to yeah, it wasn't face quite, the reality. It wasn't, uh, it Maybe wasn't, 10 years is a wrong... Yeah, 10 years is a little long, but, but uh, I mean, in other words, the volume on how bad oh. they were that was, was really high for about two, two and a half years. And the self-destructive habit, yeah, like yeah. what? Um, I snorted heroin and drank too much and, uh, you know, just dated people that perhaps were not the, the best. Right choice for you. Right, exactly. Um, uh, you know, nothing that a lot of people who haven't had my experience haven't done as well. Sure. Um, but and understandably so, uh, except right. and it, it's all you're in, hurting yourself. Right, exactly. It's all the way in which you're doing it. And, and you know, uh, if you drink and throw up every time you drink, then that's not really having a good time. Um. <laughs> no. No. Um, so no, or if you risk an overdose with heroin, that's not having a good time right, either. Right. She's a very kinky girl, the kind who don't take home to my bar. She will never let your spirits down once you get her off the street. Oh, girl. She likes the boys in the band. She says that I'm her all-time favorite. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, January 6th. That day has totally different significance now. The hooliganism, can you believe it's been a year? Thursday, January 6th, 2020. So I have been told, like hooliganism aside, man, I almost slipped back into my childhood days, man, talking about kindergarten. Hop up on this table and can't touch this. Woo! Can't touch this. But that is a different song. We are here for the book club. Get serious. We do not play music just for me to, you know shake my rump and get loose for 2022 the only reason rick james is playing in the background 
is because Alice Siebold, our author, she called herself a super freak last week. Temptation Sing. She called herself a super freak last week. And I pointed that out last week. I said, hey, she says her so-called Negro rape happened in 1981. That is the exact same year. Rick James, super freak, released. Now, I said last week, I don't know what she meant when she said super freak. She calls herself a freak repeatedly in the book but last week it went even further with the super freak you can think to yourself how many times do you hear someone especially a female call herself a freak and then what's the context what do they mean much less how often do you hear someone call themselves a super freak and again what do they mean So we're going to keep Rick James Super Freak in mind as we read the remainder of this book. And with everything she's already talked about, all of the so-called kinky sex, that word is in Mr. Fuller's word guide, uh, and bondage and leather and straps and old white guys coming in having sex with these young freshmen, females, 40-year-olds. She talked about Woody Allen type of a thing, Jeffrey Epstein type of a thing. All of that and the underage drinking. Hmm. Super freaky indeed. So we heard Charlie Rose. Speaking of super freak, old Charlie Rose, white man also accused of sexual misconduct. They don't talk about slicing off his testicles either. But that was Alice Siebel talking to Charlie Rose way back in 2002, so it's been 20 years. Uh, I think it was important she started out that interview and she talked about how in her other book, The Lovely Bones, the serial killer lived in the neighborhood. So again, just what was said last week, the killer is not some Negro hiding out under the porch in a woodpile to rape and maim. It's a white man who lives in the neighborhood. That is typical for sexual abuse, exactly what we're talking about here. It's someone you know, not some strange negra. Uh, she, super freak, when talking to Charlie Rose, says, hey, you know, the way that I responded to my rape at 18 by this negra was do a lot of self-destructive behavior, you know, do a lot of drinking, snorting heroin, dating people that I shouldn't have been. Now I say many reasons to pause right there. Number one, super freak. Number two, snorting heroin. I think I might have said cocaine there, but I mean that there's a reason for that. But she said snorting heroin. Most heroin users don't snort. They inject. I actually do know uh, heroin abusers, people who publicly confess to being heroin addicts. Most of them inject. People generally snort cocaine, but whatever. You're doing whatever, illicit drugs and sleeping around. She didn't say sleeping around with males, so it could have been males, females. Who knows? And then all this 
drinking, which he'd already talked about in the book, all the keggers and underage drinking that was going on at UPenn and all the other institutions. I bring this up not to shame, slut shaming they call it, not for that at all. I wouldn't bring anything up about that at all, but just how willing Charlie Rose and others are to sympathize with a white person regardless of what their behaviors are. I don't know how willing we would be if it was a black person, male or female, to empathize with them if they're snorting heroin and drinking alcohol to abuse and a whole lot of promiscuous activity like oh my god like I don't know I don't know I could be in error anyway she does all this nonsense you know why are you writing these books all I want to get these young women their voice she means white women that's an important one because she's not trying to empathize with Lavina Johnson she didn't write a book on her story she lost her voice that's not what this is about Ayanna Stanley Jones that's not what this is about this is about white women who've lost their voice or who she wants to sympathize with that's one two anthony broadwater lost his voice too she didn't have any concern about that he was just a no count raping negro the rapist incidentally she has a lot of the laughter where she laughs about her snorting in alcohol she laughs about having to miss class to go pick out the rapist uh, it could be that she's nervous but it just seems incongruent for what's being discussed and we pointed that out in the book where she has those lines where she's making jokes with her debt immediately after the rape the only thing that I've had to eat or the only thing I've had in my mouth is a cracker and cock hey, really anyway we will return to the book we're in chapter 8 of Alice Siebold's Lucky, this is our fourth installment on the book read. Take excellent notes. Be attentive. We will have the lineup for Gregory Madison, a.k.a. Anthony Broadwater, this week. Cal's Book Club, Alice Bold Lucky, audio segment number one. I needed someone to go with me to the hearing, but Mary Alice was busy and Ken Childs was obviously not the right choice. Lila was my new friend. I didn't want to ruin that. I approached Tess Gallagher and asked her if she'd come. I'm honored, Gallagher said. We'll have lunch in a good restaurant. My treat. I don't remember what I wore, only that Gallagher, who was known on campus for flamboyant dress and just the right hat, wore a tailored suit and sensible shoes. Seeing her hemmed in in this way, literally, made me know she had prepped for battle. She knew how the outside world judged poets. I know I wore something appropriate. In the halls of the courthouse, we looked like what we were, a co-ed and her youthful mother figure. My greatest fear was the possibility of seeing Gregory Madison. Tess and I walked through the halls of the Onondaga County Courthouse with a detective from the Public Safety Building. He was meant to guide us to the correct courtroom, where I would meet the attorney chosen to represent the state. But I had to use the ladies' room, and he had only a vague idea where it was. Tess and I went off in search of it. The old part of the courthouse was marble. Tess's low heels clicked against this in a staccato beat, we finally found the bathroom, where, fully clothed, I sat in a stall and stared at the wooden door in front of me. I was alone, 
however briefly, and I tried to calm down. The walk from the public safety building and into the courthouse had left my heart in my throat. I had heard the phrase before, but now I literally felt as if something thick and vital were jammed in my throat and thumping. Blood rushed to my brain, and I put my head down, trying not to heave. When I emerged, I was pale. I did not want to look at myself in the mirror. I looked at Tess instead. I watched her readjust two decorative combs on either side of her head. There, she said, happy with the way they set. Ready? I looked at her, and she winked back at me. Tricia was standing with the detective when we returned. Tricia and Tess were a study in opposites. Tricia, who represented the Rape Crisis Center and signed her notes to me, in sisterhood, was the one I didn't quite trust. Tess was my first experience of a woman who had inhabited her weirdness, moved into the areas of herself that made her distinct from those around her, and learned how to display them proudly. Tricia was too interested in drawing me out. She wanted me to feel. I didn't see how feeling was going to do me any good. Onondaga County Courthouse was not a place to open up. It was a place to hold fast to what I knew to be the truth. I had to work at keeping every fact alive and available. What Tess had was metal. I needed this more than an anonymous sisterhood. I told Tricia she could go. Tess and I sat on a wooden bench outside the courtroom. It reminded me of the benches in the closed-in pews at St. Peter's. We waited for what seemed like hours. Tess told me stories about growing up in Washington State, about the logging industry, about fishing, and about her partner, Raymond Carver. My hands were sweating. I had a short bout of uncontrollable shaking. I heard less than half of the words Tess said. I think she knew this. She wasn't actually speaking to me. She was singing a kind of lullaby of talk. But eventually, the lullaby stopped. She was irritated, looked at her watch. She knew she couldn't do anything. A diva on campus and in the poetry world, she was just a small woman with no power now. She had to wait it out with me. Our lunch treat seemed very far away. Since that day, if I am made to wait long enough for something I dread, my nervousness dissipates into a steely boredom. It is a mindset, and it goes like this. If hell is inevitable, I enter what I call trauma zen. So by the time ADA Ryan assigned to the case that day because ADA Ubelair was in court with another matter, walked up to introduce himself, Tess was silent, and I was staring at the elevator six feet away. Ryan was a young man in his late twenties or early thirties. He had reddish-brown hair in need of a comb. He wore a sort of nubby sport coat with suede elbow patches, which seemed more in place on the campus I'd just left than inside a courtroom. He called Tess Mrs. Seabold, and, after being corrected and informed that she was one of my professors, he grew flustered. He was embarrassed and impressed. He stole little looks at her, trying both to include her and figure her out at the same time. What do you teach, he asked her. Poetry, she said. Are you a poet? Yes, actually, Tess said. What do you have for our girl here, she asked. 
I wouldn't understand it until later, but the ADA was flirting with Tess, and she, swiftly and with a skill developed from experience, deflected him. First up, Alice, he said to me, you'll be happy to know that the defendant has waived his right to appear. What does that mean? It means that his attorney has agreed not to contest identification. Is that good? Yes, but you still have to answer any questions his attorney has. I understand, I said. We're here to prove it was a rape, that the act with the suspect was not consensual, but forcible. Understand? Yes. Can Tess come with me? Quietly. Don't speak once you walk through that door. The professor will slip into one of the seats in the back near the bailiff. You'll approach the stand, and I'll take it from there. He went into the courtroom doors to our right. Across from us, a group of people got off the elevator and started walking toward us. One man, in particular, took a good, long look at both of us. This was the defense attorney, Mr. Majesto. A while later, a bailiff opened the door of the courtroom. We are ready for you, Miss Siebold. Tess and I did as Mr. Ryan had instructed. I walked to the front of the courtroom. I could hear papers shuffling and someone clearing his throat. I stepped into the witness stand and turned around. There were only a few people in the room and only two rows near the back, which composed a gallery. I saw Tess to my right. I looked at her once. She gave me a go get em smile. I didn't look her way again. Mr. Ryan approached me and established my name, age, address, and other vitals. This gave me time to adjust to the sound of the court reporter's machine and to the idea that all of this was being written down. What happened to me in that tunnel was now something I would not only have to say aloud, but that others would sit and read and reread. After asking a few questions about how the light was that night and where the rape took place, he asked me the question he had warned me I would have to answer. Can you tell us in your own words what happened at that time? I tried to take my time. Ryan frequently interrupted my account. He asked about the lighting again, whether there was a moon out, whether I struggled. He wanted details of whether blows struck were open-handed or closed-fisted, asked whether I feared for my life, and questioned me about how much money the rapist had taken from me, and whether I had given it willingly or not. After I described the fight outside the tunnel, his question turned the events inside the amphitheater. Describe to me, from the time he took you into the theater, what force he used and what you did prior to the act of sexual intercourse that occurred. First, he brought me up to his face with his hands around my neck and kissed me a couple of times, and then he said to take my clothes off. He tried to take my clothes off first. He couldn't get my belt undone. He told me to do it, and I did. When he told you to take your clothes off, was that before or after he told you he would kill you if you didn't do what he told you? After, and I was bleeding at the time. My face wasn't in the best of shape. You were bleeding? Yes. From falling down? From falling down and him hitting me and smashing my face. Prior to the act of sexual intercourse you described, he struck you? Mm-hmm. Where did he strike you? In the face. I couldn't breathe for a while. He kept his hands around my neck. He scratched my face. 
Also, he just generally punched me around when I was on the ground and he was sitting on me to keep me from going anywhere. All right, Ryan said. And after this, you mentioned he was having some difficulty, having an erection for some period of time. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I had forgotten the instructions from the judge. I was supposed to clearly enunciate a yes or a no. What happened after that? He wasn't able to have an erection. I didn't really know if he had or not. I'm not familiar with that. But then, before he came into me and had intercourse, he stopped once and made me get on my knees, and he was standing up, and he told me to give him a blowjob. Did there come a time after this you eventually did get away from him? Yes. How did that come about? After he did come in me, he got me up off the ground and started dressing and found some of my clothes and gave them to me, and I put those on, and he said, You're going to have a baby, bitch. What are you going to do about it? I detailed how the rapist hugged me, apologized, then let me go, only to call after me. Ryan paused. His next few questions were my only rest period. What was taken from me during the incident? What was the rapist wearing? His size? His appearance? I don't recall whether you mentioned whether he was white or black, Ryan said before closing. He was black, I said. That is all, Your Honor. Ryan turned to sit down. The judge called Cross, and Mr. Majesto stood and approached. Both defense attorneys who represented Madison over the course of the year shared certain traits. They were shortish, balding, and had something fetid going on on their upper lips. Whether it was an unkempt mustache, as in Majesto's case, or grainy beads of sweat, it was an ugliness I focused on as each one cross-examined me. I felt if I was going to win, I had to hate the attorneys representing him. They may have been earning a paycheck or randomly assigned to the case, had children they loved or a terminally ill mother to take care of. I didn't care. They were there to destroy me. I was there to fight back. Is it Miss Siebold? Is that the way it is pronounced? Yes. Miss Siebold, you said you were at 321 Westcott Street on the night of the incident. Mm-hmm. The tone of his voice was condemning, as if I had been a bad little girl and told a lie. How long had you been there on this evening? From approximately eight to midnight. Did you have anything to drink while there? I had nothing at all to drink. Did you have anything to smoke while you were there? Nothing at all to smoke. Did you have any cigarettes? No. You didn't smoke that evening? No. You had nothing to drink that evening? No. That tack not having worked, he moved on to his next. How long have you worn glasses? Since I was in the third grade. Do you know what your vision is without glasses? I am nearsighted and can see very well close up. I don't know exactly, but it isn't that bad. I can see road signs and such. Do you have a driver's license? Yes, I do. Do you need your license? Yes, I do. You maintain your driver's license? Yes. I didn't know what he was doing. It made sense to me that he might ask if my license required me to wear corrective lenses, but he didn't. Was I a better or worse person with a license? Was I firmly an adult and not a child, making it less a crime to rape me? 
I never figured out his reasoning. He continued, Is it a fair statement to say you wear your glasses all the time to be able to see? No. When don't you wear them? When I'm reading, and basically when I'm just doing most anything. How could I explain, on the stand, a battle I had had with my eye doctor? He said I wore my glasses more than I needed to, that in my desire to be so clued in, I was ruining my vision and making my eyes, as they are now, dependent on corrective lenses. Did you think you needed your glasses on this evening in October? He meant May, but no one corrected him. It was night, yes. Do you see poorer at night? No, I don't. Was there any special reason you brought your glasses? No. Is it a fair statement to say you wear your glasses when you leave the dorm all the time? No. Was there any special reason you wore your glasses that evening? Probably because they were a week old, and I liked them. They were new. He jumped on this. New prescription or just new design of frame? Just new design of frame. Prescription the same? Yes. Prescribed by whom? Dr. Kent of Philadelphia, near my home. Do you recall where these... Do you recall when that was? December 1980, I think, was my last prescription. Prescribed and made in 1980. Is that correct? Could he know that he was making his point and losing it simultaneously? That my prescription had been updated six months before the rape? I didn't know what he was doing, but I was going to follow him at every turn. He wanted to back me into a maze I couldn't get out of. I was determined. I felt I had what Gallagher had, metal. I could feel it in my veins. Mm-hmm, I said. And I believe you say that at some point during the struggle, your glasses were knocked from you. Is that correct? Yes. It was a dark area. Is that correct? Yes. How dark would you say it was? Not that dark. It was light enough so I could see physical features. Face, plus the fact that his face was very close to mine, and since I am nearsighted and not farsighted, my vision is good up close. He turned to the side and looked up a moment. For a second, adrenaline pumping in my veins, I watched the court. Everyone was still. This was business as usual to them. Another prelim on another rape case. Ho-hum. I believe you said at some point this individual kissed you? He was good. Sweaty lip, bad mustache, and all. He went, with a keen, deft precision, right to my heart. The kissing hurt still. The fact that it was only under my rapist's orders that I kissed back often seems not to matter. The intimacy of it stings. Since then, I've always thought that under rape, in the dictionary, it should tell the truth. It is not just forcible intercourse. Rape means to inhabit and destroy everything. Yes, I said. When you say kissed you, do you mean on the mouth? Yes. Were you both standing? Yes. In relation to your height, how tall was the individual? He chose the kiss to lead me to the rapist's height. Approximately the same height or an inch above, I said. How tall are you, Miss Siebold? Five, five and a half. You would say this individual was probably the same height or maybe an inch taller? Mm-hmm. 
When you were standing there, looking at him, he looked to be about the same height. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Just about that? Yes. His tone, since questioning my vision, had changed. There was now not even a trace of respect in it. Seeing that he had not yet gotten the best of me, he had switched into a sort of hateful overdrive. I felt threatened by him, even though, by all measures, I was safe in that courtroom and surrounded by professionals. I was afraid. I believe you testified that the description you gave on that night indicated he was of a muscular build? Yes. Short and had short black hair? Yes. Do you remember telling the police when you made your voluntary affidavit you thought he was about 150 pounds? Yes. Is that your best estimate as to the weight of this individual? I'm really not very good with weight, I said. I don't know the ratio of muscle or fat in someone's body. You do recall telling him it was 150 pounds. The police officers gave me an estimation of what they might weigh, a man, and I said, yes, that looked approximately correct. Are you saying you were influenced by what the police officer told you? No, he was just giving me an example to follow. It seemed approximately close. Based on what the police officer gave you and your physical observation, is your testimony on May 8th your best estimate of the weight of this individual is 150 pounds? Yes. Have you heard anything that would change your mind at this point? No. His energy zoomed. He looked just like a boy who was savoring the last bite of cake. Mr. Majesto had gotten something back after losing on vision, but I didn't know what. I was tired now. I was doing my best, but I felt my energy drain. I had to get it back. I believe you say you were struck in the face a number of times? Yes. And that you were bleeding? Yes. And your glasses had been knocked from you? In hindsight, I wish I had the wherewithal to say, none of this made me blind. Yes, I said. Did you seek any medical attention for your injuries? Yes. When was that? The same night, right after I got back to the dorm and before I arrived at the police station, I reported to the police. The police brought me to Krauss Irving Memorial Hospital and I went to the lab where they prescribed medication for my facial cuts. I would try and stay steady. I would give the facts. Were you able to find your glasses on the night of this incident? The police found the glasses. He interrupted me. You didn't have them when you left the area? You did not leave with your glasses? Right. Anything else you remember? No. I felt hushed by him now. The gloves were off. Can you tell me briefly what you were wearing on the night of October 5th? Mr. Ryan stood and corrected the date. May 8th. On May 8th, Mr. Majesto rephrased. Tell me what you were wearing. Calvin Klein jeans, blue work shirt, heavy beige cable-knit cardigan sweater, moccasins, and underwear. I hated this question, knew even on that stand what it was all about. Was that cardigan sweater one that pulled on or buttoned up the front? Buttons up the front. You didn't have to take it over your head to get it off, is that correct? Right. I was seething. I'd gotten my energy back because what my clothes had to do with why or how I was raped seemed obvious. Nothing. I believe you testified this individual attempted to disrobe you and, failing that, ordered you to do so? Right. 
I had a belt on. He couldn't work the belt correctly from the opposite side of me. He said, you do it. So I did. This was the belt holding up your Calvin Klein jeans? He emphasized Calvin Klein with a sneer I was unprepared for. It had come to this. Yes. He was facing you? Yes. Your testimony was he wasn't able to work the clasp, whatever the gimmick was, that closed that belt? Mm-hmm. You did it on his orders? Yes. Now it was his turn to take a point. He questioned me on the rapist's knife. I had seen it only in the photos of the crime scene and in my mind's eye. I admitted to Majesto that, though the rapist had threatened me and made gestures to retrieve it from his back pocket, because of the struggle on my part, I had never seen it. Is it a fair statement to say you were very frightened by all this? Majesto asked, moving on. Yes. When did you first become frightened? As soon as I heard footsteps behind me. Did your pulse beat increase? I imagine some, yes, I said. I didn't understand why he was asking me this. Do you recall? No, I don't recall if my pulse beat increased. Do you recall becoming scared and breathing short and fast? I recall becoming scared, and whatever physical things come from that, I probably had them, but I wasn't hyperventilating or anything like that. Do you remember anything else other than being scared? Mental state? I thought I'd say it, since that's what I thought he was driving at. No, he said. I mean physically. Do you remember how your body acted when you were frightened? Did you tremble, increase in pulse rate, have any change in breathing? No, I don't remember any specific changes except for the fact that I was screaming. I did keep telling the rapist that I was going to vomit because my mother gave me articles that said if you say you are going to vomit, they won't rape you. That was a ruse to use on this individual and might scare him off? Yes. Did you ever learn the identity of this individual? Exactly what time or... Did you ever learn the identity of this individual? By me, no. I wasn't quite sure of what he was asking. Interpreted him to be asking if I knew Madison's name back in May. Well, did you ever see this individual prior to May of 1981? No. Did you ever see this individual after May of 1981? Yes, I saw him in October. Did you ever see this individual between May and October of 1981? No. Never did? No. When did you see him after May of 1981? I told him of the incident on October 5th. I detailed the time, location, and my sighting at the same time of the red-headed policeman who turned out to be Officer Clapper. I told him I had called the police and had come back to the public safety building to give a description of the rapist. You gave a description to whom, he asked. Mr. Ryan objected. I think we have gone outside the scope of direct examination, he said. Anything further would be for a Wade hearing. I had no idea what that was. The three men, Mr. Ryan, Mr. Majesto, and Judge Anderson, debated what had been stipulated prior to the preliminary. They reached an agreement. Mr. Majesto could continue concerning the arrest of the individual, but the judge warned that he was going into it, the issue of identification. The judge's last words recorded in the transcript are, Come on. Even now I hear the fatigue in them. His major motivation, I feel certain, 
was to wrap it up and get to lunch. Frantic, because I had not understood the decision, or even, frankly, what the hell they had been talking about, I tried to focus back on Mr. Majesto. Whatever was said, it gave him permission to attack again. After you crossed the street and went to Huntington Hall, did you ever see this individual again? No. Were you shown any photographs? No. At the time, I didn't know that there was no photo lineup in my case because a mugshot of Gregory Madison did not exist. Ever taken to a lineup? No. You came there and made an identification at the police station? Yes. That is after you called your mother? Yes. And after that, you were informed someone was arrested? I wasn't informed that night. I was informed, I think it was this Thursday morning, by Officer Lorenz. So, you didn't know of your own knowledge whether or not the individual that you saw on October 5th was the individual that was arrested? There was no way I could know that unless the police who arrested him. The question is, yes or no, do you know whether or not the individual... This time, when he cut me off, it made me mad. As they described the man, it was the man they arrested. Question is, do you know? I haven't seen him since he was arrested. You didn't see him? The man I described on the 8th of May and the individual on October 5th is the man that raped me. That is your testimony. You believe the man you saw on October 5th. I know the man I saw on October 5th is the man that raped me. The man you say is the man who raped you is the same man you saw on October 5th? Right. But you don't know whether that man was arrested. Well, I didn't arrest him. How would I know? That is my question. You don't know. All right, I don't know then. What else could I say? He had proven very dramatically that I was not a member of the Syracuse Police Department. Mr. Majesto turned to the judge. I don't think I have anything further, he said. But he wasn't done. I stayed in the witness stand while the judge listened and then debated the point of identification with him. It turned out that Ryan's purpose had been to have Madison in the court, that by Madison's having waived his right to appear, all Ryan now had to prove was that a rape had taken place on May 8th and that I had identified a man I believed to be my assailant. There was confusion. Ryan believed that in Madison waiving his right to appear, Majesto had forfeited the question of identification. That was not Majesto's understanding. Held for action of the grand jury, the judge said finally. He was tired. I concluded from the movements of Ryan and Majesto, they were closing up their briefcases, that I was done. Tess and I went to lunch. We had upstate New York food, cheese fries, that sort of thing. We sat in a restaurant booth, and the smell of grease from the kitchen filled the air. She talked. She filled the time with talk. I stared up at the lush restaurant philodendrons that adorned and softened the high shelves separating each booth. I was exhausted. Now I wonder if Tess was silently asking the question I do when I reread the transcripts from that day. Where were my parents? I want to give them an excuse. Perhaps they don't need one. At the time, I felt that since it had been my decision to return to Syracuse, the outcome of this, that I had indeed run into my rapist again, was left to me. Now I'm tempted to make all the excuses available to them. 
my mother didn't fly, my father was teaching, etc. But there was time. My mother could have driven up, my father could have canceled his classes for one day. But I was 19 and ornery. I was afraid of their comfort, that to feel anything was to feel weak. I called from the restaurant and told my mother the judge's decision. She was happy I had tests with me, asked questions about when the grand jury would be held, and fretted about the lineup, any close proximity to him. She had been nervous all day, waiting for the phone to ring. I was glad to bring her good news. It was the closest I could get to straight A's. I was taking a normal course load in school. Of the five classes, two were writing workshops, but three were requirements. Tessa's survey course, a foreign language, classics in translation. In the classics class, I was bored stiff. The teacher spoke less than he intoned, and this, combined with the shabby, much-used textbook, made the class seem like an hour of death every other day. But in the midst of this teacher's droning on, I started to read Catullus, Sappho, Apollonius, and Lysistrata, a play by Aristophanes in which the women of Athens and Sparta rebel. Until the men of both nation-states agree to make peace, these women of warring cities unite in a boycott of all marital relations. Aristophanes wrote this in 411 B.C., but it translated beautifully. Our teacher insisted that it was low comedy, but in its hidden message, the power of women united, the play was very important to me. Ten days after the preliminary hearing, I returned home to my dorm after the Italian 101 class I appeared to be failing. I could not speak the words out loud the way we were required to. I sat in the back of the classroom and couldn't keep my mind on the conjugations. When I was called on, I butchered some form of what I was convinced might be a word, but which the professor had trouble recognizing. Under my door at Haven, someone had slid an envelope. It was from the office of the district attorney. I was being subpoenaed to testify before the grand jury on November 4th at 2 p.m. I was supposed to go down to Marshall Street with Lila after she got back from class. While I waited, I called the DA's office. Gail Ubelaire, who would represent me, wasn't in. I had the office assistant say her name a few times, slowly. I wanted to get it right. I still have the piece of paper where I wrote it down, phonetically, how to say it. Ubelaire or Ebelaire. I practiced saying it in front of the mirror, trying to make it sound natural. Hello, Ms. Ubelaire. It's Alice Siebold from State versus Gregory Madison. Hello, Ms. Ebelaire. I worked on it. I put Italian aside. On the morning of November 4th, a county car met me at Haven Hall. I watched for it through the glass walls of the dorm's entranceway. Students had already attended breakfast in the cafeteria upstairs and gathered their books to leave for classes. I'd been up since five. I tried to linger over the rituals of hygiene. I took a long shower in the bathroom down the hall. I moisturized my face, as Mary Alice had taught me to do the year before. I selected and pressed my clothes. My body alternated between stony chills and hot flashes of nerves centered near my chest. I was aware that this might be the kind of panic that ruled my mother. I swore I would not allow it to rule me. 
I left the glass-walled foyer and met the detective as he was coming in. I engaged his eyes. I shook his hand. I'm Alice Siebold, I said. Right on time. It's hard to oversleep on a day like this, I said. I was sunny, cheery, reliable. I wore an Oxford cloth shirt and a skirt. On my feet, I wore my Papagallo pumps. I had fretted that morning because I could not find nude hose. I had black and I had red, neither of which was an appropriate choice for the virgin co-ed the grand jury would expect. I borrowed a pair from my resident advisor. In the county car, marked with the seal of Onondaga on the front doors, I rode in the front beside the detective. We made small talk about the university. He talked about sports teams, which I knew nothing about, and projected that the Carrier Dome, little over a year old, would bring a lot of revenue to the area. I nodded my head and tried to contribute, but I was obsessively worried about the way I looked, the way I spoke, the way I moved. Tricia from the Rape Crisis Center would be my company that day. We had about an hour of waiting before the lineup to be held at the Public Safety Building jail. This time, the elevator of the Public Safety Building did not stop at the floor I was familiar with, where the reassuring sight of a security door and policemen with coffee mugs met you once you stepped off. The hallways the detective Tricia and I walked down were full of people, police and victims, lawyers and criminals. A policeman led a man in handcuffs down the hall past us while he barked an amiable joke about some recent party to another policeman on the hall. There was a Latina sitting in a plastic chair in the hallway. She stared at the floor, clutching her purse and a crumpled Kleenex in her hand. The detective brought us into a large room in which makeshift dividers no more than four feet tall separated desks from one another. There were men, policemen, sitting at most of them. Their postures were tense and temporary. They came there to fill out reports or quickly interview a witness or make a call before going back out on patrol or, perhaps, finally going home. We were told to sit and wait, that they were experiencing a difficulty with the lineup. His lawyer, it was intimated, was the problem. I'd yet to meet Assistant District Attorney Ubelair. I wanted to meet her. She was a woman, and in this all-male atmosphere, this made a difference to me. But Ubelair was busy with whatever was holding up the lineup. I was worried about Madison seeing me. He won't be able to see you, the detective said. We lead him in, and he's behind a one-way mirror. He can't see a thing. Tricia and I sat there. She didn't talk like Tess had talked, but she was attentive. She asked after my family and classes, told me lineups were one of the most stressful procedures for rape victims, and inquired several times whether I wanted anything to drink. I now think what distanced me from Tricia and from the Rape Crisis Center was their use of generalities. I did not want to be one of a group or compared with others. It somehow blindsided my sense that I was going to survive. Tricia prepared me for failure by saying that it would be okay if I failed. She did this by showing me that the odds out there were against me. But what she told me, I didn't want to hear. In the face of dismal statistics regarding arrest, prosecution, and even full recovery for the victim, I saw no choice but to ignore the statistics. I needed what gave me hope, 
like being assigned a female assistant district attorney. Not the news that the number of rape prosecutions in Syracuse for that calendar year had been nil. Suddenly, Tricia said, Oh my God! What? I asked, but I did not turn around. Cover yourself. I had nothing to do this with. I bent over and put my face in my skirt. I kept my eyes open against the cloth. Tricia was up and complaining. Get them out of here, she said. Get them out of here. A hurried, sorry, came from a policeman. Moments later, I looked up. They were gone. There had been faulty communication about which way to lead the men in the lineup into the lineup room. I was out of breath. Had he seen me? I was sure if he had, he would find me and kill me. The treachery of my lies that night, that I would not report it to anyone, that I was too ashamed, would not be lost on him. I looked up. Gail Ubelair was standing in front of me. She held out her hand. I offered her mine. She shook it firmly. Well, that was a little scary, she said, but I think they got them out in time. Her hair was short and black, and she had an arresting smile. She was tall, nearly 5'10", and had a real body. No emaciated waif, she was solid and female, and she had sparkling, intelligent eyes. The connection for me was immediate. Gail was what I wanted to be when I grew up. She was there to do a job. She wanted what I wanted, to win. She explained that I was about to view a lineup, and that afterward we would talk about the grand jury, and she would tell me exactly what to expect, how the room would look when I walked in, how many civilians there would be in the room, and what kind of questions they might ask. Questions, she warned, that might be hard to answer, but that I must. Are you ready? she asked. Yes, I said. Led by Gail, Tricia and I approached the open door to the viewing side of the room. Inside, it was dark. There were a number of men, one I recognized, Sergeant Lorenz. I had not seen him since the night of the rape. He nodded his head. There were two uniformed men and another, the attorney for the defendant, Paquette. I don't know why she has to be here, he said, indicating Tricia. I am a representative from the Rape Crisis Center, Tricia said. I know who you are, but I think there are too many people in here already, he said. He was small and pale, balding. He would be with me through the rest of the case. It's common practice, Sergeant Lorenz said. To my knowledge, she is not an official here. She has no official connection to the case. The argument continued. Gail got involved. Sergeant Lorenz stated again that it was becoming more and more accepted in rape cases to have a representative of a rape crisis there. She has her female attorney here, Paquette said. That's enough. I refuse to have my client involved in this lineup until she is removed. Gail consulted with Lorenz near the front of the dark room. She returned to where I stood with Tricia. He won't continue, she said. We're already behind on the lineup, and I have to be in court at one. It's okay, I said. I'm okay. I was lying. I felt as if the wind had been knocked out of me. Are you sure, Alice? she asked. I want you to be sure. We can delay. No, I said. I'm okay. I want to do this. Tricia was dismissed. The lineup procedure was explained to me. 
how five men would be led into the area behind the mirror, and how before they were let in, the lights in that area would be turned on. Since it is light on their side and dark here, they won't be able to see you, Lorenz said. He explained that I should take my time, could ask him to have them turn to the left or the right or to speak. He repeated that I should take my time. When you are sure, he said, I want you to walk over and place an X solidly in the corresponding box on the clipboard I have set up over there. Do you understand? Yes, I said. Do you have any questions, Gail asked. She said yes, Paquette said. I felt like I had as a child. The adults were not getting along, and it was up to me to be a good girl enough to drain the tension from the room. That tension made my breath shallow and my heart race. I could tell Majesto my symptoms of panic now. I was thoroughly intimidated. But I had said I was ready. It was wrong to turn back. The room itself frightened me. I was unable to take my eyes from the one-way mirror. On television shows, there was always an expansive floor on the other side of the one-way mirror, and then a platform with a door off to the side where the suspects stepped into the room, filed up two or three stairs, and took their places. There was a reassuring distance between the victims and the suspects. But the rooms I'd seen on cop shows were nothing like this one. The mirror took up a whole wall. On the other side of the wall was a space little wider than a man's shoulders, so that when they entered and turned, the front of their bodies would be almost flush against the mirror. I would share the same square foot of floor with the suspects. My rapist would be standing right in front of me. Lorenz gave the order over a microphone, and the light was switched on, on the other side of the mirror. Five black men in almost identical light blue shirts and dark blue pants walked in and assumed their places. You can move closer, Alice, Lorenz said. It's not one, two, or three, I said. You don't need to rush, Eubelair said. Move closer and take a good look at each of them. I can have them turn to the left or right, Lorenz said. Paquette was quiet. I did as instructed. I moved closer even though, already, they appeared close enough to touch. Can you have them turn to the side, I asked. They were asked to turn to the left, each of them, individually. When they faced front again, I drew back. Can they see me, I asked. They can see a movement on the glass, Lorenz said, but they can't see you, no. They know when someone's standing in front of them, but they won't know who it is. I took this at face value. I did not say, who else could it be? There had been no one else with us in that tunnel. I stood in front of number one. He looked too young. I moved to two. He looked nothing like the suspect. Out of the corner of my eye, I already knew the challenge came two men down, but I stood in front of three long enough to agree with my earlier assessment. He was too tall. His build was wrong. I stood in front of number four. He was not looking at me. While he looked toward the floor, I saw his shoulders, wide like my rapist, and powerful. The shape of his head and neck, just like my rapist. His build, his nose, his lips. I hugged my arms across my chest and stared. Alice, are you all right? Someone asked. Paquette objected. I felt I had done something wrong. 
I moved on to number five. His build was right, his height, and he was looking at me, looking right at me, as if he knew I was there, knew who I was. The expression in his eyes told me that if we were alone, if there were no wall between us, he would call me by name and then kill me. His eyes gripped on and controlled. I mustered all my energy and turned around. I'm ready, I said. Are you sure, Lorenz said. She said she was ready, Paquette said. I approached the clipboard while Lorenz held it for me. Everyone watched, Gail, Paquette, and Lorenz. I placed my X in the number five box. I had marked the wrong one. I was excused. I saw Trisha in the hall. How was it? Number four and five looked like identical twins, I said, before the uniformed policeman assigned to me led me into the conference room nearby. Make sure she doesn't talk to anyone, Lorenz said, ducking his head in. His tone was a reprimand, now that I already had. In the conference room, I searched the eyes of the uniformed man for whether I had chosen the right one, but his face was impassive. I felt a wave of nausea hit me and paced the floor in between the conference table and a row of chairs against the wall. My throat was thick and clogged. I became convinced in those moments that I had chosen the wrong man. I told myself I had acted on impulse, not considered the two men and their postures long enough. I'd been so intent on getting it over with that I hadn't been thorough. Ever since I'd been little, my parents had accused me of this, not taking my time, acting rashly, jumping the gun. The door opened and a downcast Lorenz walked in. I could see Gail out in the hallway. He closed the door. It was four, wasn't it? I asked him. Lorenz was big and burly, a sort of sitcom father stereotype with a more gritty northeastern twist. I sensed immediately that I had disappointed him. He didn't need to say anything. I had chosen the wrong one. It was number four. You were in a hurry to get out of there, he said. It was four. I can't tell you anything, he said. Ubelair wants an affidavit. She wants you to detail the lineup for her. Tell us exactly why you chose five. Where is she? I was suddenly frantic. I felt myself collapsing inward. I had failed them all, and this was the wrap-up. Ubelair would go on to other cases. Better victims. She had no time to waste with a failure like me. The suspect has agreed to provide samples of his pubic hair, Lorenz said, and couldn't help but grin. Counsel has elected to be present in the men's room for extraction. Why would he do that, I asked. Because he has reason to believe that the hair found on your person the night of the incident may not match his. But it will, I said. He has to know that. His lawyer weighed the odds and decided to do it. It looks good if they volunteer. We need to take a statement. You sit tight. He went to find paper and to attend to things I couldn't know. The uniform left me alone in the room. You'll be safe in here, he said. During that time, I put two and two together. I had identified the wrong man. Directly afterward, Paquette had agreed to voluntary extraction of a pubic hair from his client. Ubelair had told me the defense was building a case based on misidentification, 
a panicked white girl saw a black man on the street. He spoke familiarly to her, and in her mind she connected this to her rape. She was accusing the wrong man. The lineup went directly to this. I sat down at the conference table. I brought it all together in my mind, thought of what had just happened to me. I'd been so afraid, I'd chosen the man who scared me most, the one who had been looking at me. I felt I'd just caught on, too late, to a trick. Lorenz was going to be back any minute. I needed to rebuild my case. When Lorenz returned, he smiled while telling me that Madison's pubic hair had to be plucked, not cut. He was trying to be jolly in front of me. He took an affidavit. It noted that I had entered the room at 11.05 and left at 11.11. I quickly gave my reasons for ruling out the men in positions 1, 2, and 3. I compared 4 and 5 and noted they looked similar, with 4's features being a bit, quote, flatter and broader, end quote, than the suspects. I said that 4 had been looking down the whole time and that I chose 5 because he was looking right at me. I added that I had felt rushed and defense counsel's refusal to allow a member of rape crisis in the lineup room had further intimidated me. I said that I never got a good look at Four's eyes and said again that I chose five because he was looking at me. The room was quiet for a moment, save the noise of Lorenz Hunt and Peck typing. Alice, he said, it is now my duty to inform you that you failed to pick out the suspect. He did not tell me which one was the suspect. He couldn't, but I knew. He noted that he had informed me of my failure, and I stated, for the record, that in my opinion, the men in positions four and five were almost identical. Eubelair came into the room. There were other people with her, police and Tricia now. Eubelair was angry, but she smiled nonetheless. Well, we got the hair out of the bastard, she said. Officer Lorenz told me I chose the wrong one, I said. She thinks it was four, Lorenz said. The two of them looked at each other for a moment. Gail turned to me. Of course you chose the wrong one, she said. He and his attorney worked to make sure you'd never have a chance. Gail, Lorenz warned. She has a right to know. She knows anyway, she said, looking at him. He thought I needed protection. She knew I craved the truth. The reason why it took so long, Alice, is because Madison had his friend come down and stand next to him. We had to send a car to the prison to get him here. They wouldn't go ahead until he showed. I don't understand, I said. He's allowed to have his friend stand next to him? It's the defendant's right, she said, and it makes good sense on a certain level. If the others in the lineup don't appear to the suspect to look enough like him, he can choose someone to stand beside him. Can we say that? I was beginning to see a window of explanation here. I might still have a chance. No, she said. It goes against the defendant's rights. They really worked a number on you. He uses that friend, or that friend uses him, in every lineup they do. They're dead ringers. I listened to everything she said. Eubelair had seen it all, but still was passionate enough to get mad. So the eyes... His friend gives you a look that's scary. He can tell when you're standing in front of the mirror and he psychs you out. Meanwhile, the suspect looks down like he doesn't even know where or why he's there, like he got lost on the way to the circus. And we can't use that in court? No. I stated a formal objection before the lineup, 
so it would be included in the record, but that's just a formality. It's not admissible unless he lets prior knowledge slip. The unfairness of this seemed unconscionable to me. Rights are weighted on the side of the defendant, Gail said. I hungered for more facts. In those moments where I could easily have slipped away, facts were my life. That's why the law uses words like reasonable doubt. It's his attorney's job to provide that doubt. The lineup was a risk. We knew something like this could happen, but there was no photo in the mug books, and he waved the prelim. We had no choice. We can't refuse a lineup. What about the hair? If we're lucky, it will match all 17 points available on a hair. But even hairs taken from the same head can vary on these points. Paquette decided the gamble was worth it. He's probably going with the story that you lost your virginity voluntarily that night and were sorry about it, that eventually you would have blamed any black man that ran into you on the street. He'll do his best to make you look bad, but we're not going to let that happen. What's next? The grand jury, she said. I was miserable. At two, the next big leg of this journey would begin, and I had to be ready for it. I'm sure I spent that time trying to clear my mind of my failure that morning, trying not to let the picture of me that Madison's attorney was building invade my mind. I did not call my mother. I had no good news, though I did have Ubelaire. I focused on the fact that she had been present for the pubic extraction. At two, I was brought into a waiting area outside the grand jury room. Gail was inside. We had not had time, as she had wished, to talk beforehand. She had been busy working on questions through lunch, and although I was scheduled for two, there were other witnesses appearing before me. Tricia, with my assurances, had left following the lineup. While I waited, I tried to think about an Italian test I had to take the next day. I got out a worksheet of sample sentences from my knapsack and stared at them. I had made some small talk about this course to the officer who'd picked me up that morning. I wished I'd had Tess with me. I had a deep fear of alienating her and Toby by being a drain on them because of the rape, so I tried to be as assiduous in their classrooms as I was with anything concerning my case. Context of white supremacy. So that will do us for our first audio segment. Uh, we will pick back up. We are in Chapter 9. Uh, there was movement in the hallway. That's where we'll start at from Chapter 9. If you have commentary to share, the number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61. If you would like to participate, number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The email address until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com 
feel free to zap a line. We will read your commentary. Uh, let's see, before we get to some of our callers, uh, one of our investors uh, wrote in. Oh, let's see. Greetings, Gus. Uh, chapter 8. Number one, asking how the light was that night. How long have you worn glasses? So it took place at night. I was not clear on this from the author's initial description at the beginning of the text. Number two, Lestrada, a play by Aristophanes. Spike Lee made a movie based on this called Chirac, easily, I think, the worst Spike Lee movie of all time. Oh, it was so awful. Oh, I hope never to speak of it again. Chapter 9. Number 1. There was a Latina sitting in a plastic chair in the hallway. The author remains very focused on the racial classification of non-white people. Highlight, underline, full-face print. Absolutely. Number 2. I had chosen the wrong one. It was number four. Broken glasses, no mugshot, and now misidentification. A picture of the lineup is in an article. New York Times, December 15, 2021, titled, He Was Convicted of Raping Alice Ebold by Karina Knowles. Incidentally, Gus T., uh, I tweeted a picture of the lineup. Anthony Broadwater is number four, if you're going left to right. Uh, the person that she picked, number five, next to him, Broadwater, is number four. She picks number five. You can see them. Now, do they look like twins? Check out the photograph. You know, come to your own conclusions about what these Negro males look like. Uh, number three, Madison had his friend come down and stand next to him. This represents coaching or manipulation of the plaintiff by prosecutors. Gives Seabold a convenient excuse. Number four, I did not want their pity. I wanted to win. Just, oh, you didn't get that far. Didn't get that far. We will pick up there when we continue in Chapter 9. Uh, so number again. 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61, if you would like to participate. Two, I guess, one, you can visit my Twitter, Until Justice, at Until Justice, and you can see if folks have any thoughts about the lineup, if you want a visual, because I think that's important. This is so, so visual. Until justice, add until justice, and you'll see the uh, image of the lineup. Uh, if folks think Gus T being silly or what have you, super freak, you can say that now, but it'll come back up later. Just keep listening to more of the content that we'll. Just keep listening to the content from today and the remainder of the book. Uh, if you don't really think Super Freak is relevant, I'm I'm willing to say right now at the halfway point of the book or thereabouts, uh, the, her identifying Mr. Broadwater as a Negro, Super Freak, virginity being in the book, 
43 times, I think it was, and rapist, the rapist, my rapist, rapist is in the book 70 times. Those four, in addition to the misidentification, I think, or excuse me, well, that would be five. So those five points, I think, super important, maybe five of the most important points that I will take away from this book at this point. And yes, super freak, herself identifying as a super freak, one of the most important points of the book. Star six one, folks have thoughts. Uh, important takeaways from the first chunk of reading. Let's see. <laughs> oh, and I know we had found that uh, we had uh, not Clemson Grad. He emailed me. I know some people. Maybe I don't. I hope people didn't miss the audio. Um, I was listening. I had uh, I had dialed in via my phone, and I also was listening on my computer, and I was able to hear the audio. Now, non Clemson Grad messaged me to say that something happened with the audio and he couldn't hear. As soon as I went to, you know, I was still hearing the computer, but I went to check, you know, to see if my phone was working. I got dropped. I tried to reconnect, could not get back online at all. It took quite a bit of time. It was strange error messages. So usual suspects, I hope people that called in live did not have, um, undue disturbance uh, in trying to listen in and participate, but man, uh, the archive will be straight and getting ready to miss out on if there was just uh, technical difficulties. Craziness, because I was, you know, like I said, I didn't get dropped the whole time. Anyway. You know, folks are sitting, hopefully they got to hear. I'll share a few of my notes and then check in and see if I have thoughts to share. Let's see. Okay. I'm so glad, I guess before I get to specific notes, I'm so thankful that you know I'm appreciative that folks are willing to volunteer their time and energy to narrate. I'm so thankful that uh, we had Alice Siebold narrate her own writing. I think that is so important, the way that she reads. Uh, I, 10 years of the book club, we've had a lot of authors read their own work on the program, including Dr. Maya Angelou. We've had a lot of authors talk about rape, sexual abuse, including Dr. Maya Angelou. So we have a point of reference she is so flat. There's just no emotion, there's no change uh, in her tone, in her cadence, her emotion, inflection, nothing. Like, it's uh, like I, people can compare. People who've listened to the Cow's Book Club or books that we've read over the years, we've heard other authors uh, reading their own works. Uh, before on the program, and we've heard other professional narrators and what have you. And sometimes they can be really traumatic about all of it, or at minimum, just competent, pronounce words correctly, and all the rest of it. But I mean, no, your life, even the part where she should be getting riled up about what's happening in the courtroom, that's the same kind of 
blunted affect. Just something that stood out to me as someone who's listened to narration for 10 years at this point. I think we even got the, the pleasure of hearing Toni Morrison read some of her own. She's reading fiction, and she had more emotion. Actual notes, speaking of fiction. Uh, so she says her greatest fear was the possibility of seeing Gregory Madison, the greatest fear, seeing a Negro in a court of law where you have an abundance of armed white law officers and he'll be under arrest, so he might even be shackled, might have the leg irons and all. He'll look like a total slave in every way, which is what we are. Why would that be the greatest fear? What's going to happen to you? Come on. Uh, let's see. Pointed this one out again because there are so many times in the book where she talks about being pale and it not attractive. Uh, that she's pale and sickly. Comes up again this week. She says, when I emerged, uh, this is when they're about to go to the courthouse, the police and all that. When I emerged, I was pale. I did not want to look at myself in the mirror. And I said that the contrast, you repeatedly are making all these statements about not having color and how the children at school teased you uh, about your color. They gave you, I think it was crayons or whatever, because they said you had no color, no pigment. Meanwhile, Gregory Madison, a.k.a. Anthony Broadwater, rapes you and comments about your white breasts. Like, really? Just pointing that out as we continue, let's see. Trisha, who represented the Rape Crisis Center and assigned her notes to me, was one I didn't quite trust. I just find this ironic because later on that becomes a point of contention. Even, in fact, she says this is a part of the uh, conspiracy to make her choose the wrong person, uh, that they had upset her asking the Rape Crisis representative to leave, when she said earlier she didn't even trust her. Well, whatever. Insisted. It's the same way I feel in brotherhood and all that. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. At the courthouse, she says, it was a place to hold fast to what, I, oh, she's talking about she's not in the feelings. This is why she didn't want Trisha from the rape crisis center. That the courthouse was a place to hold fast to what I knew to be truth. That's interesting phrasing, too. I had to work to keep every fact alive and available what Tess had was metal. I needed this more than an anonymous sisterhood. I told Trisha she could go. Metal. I will say one thing. You don't need a lot of feelings in the courthouse. She is correct about that. She needs facts and precision with words. Don't just want to be emotional and cliches and things. Let's see. She said Tess told her stories about growing up in Washington State. Woo-wee. I will tell you, I take sometimes this, uh, we something like, like, hey, that's where Gusty is. Signals, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Another one was when I said, man, her referencing as a super freak in this book. When I was looking on YouTube, let's see if we can find super freak, find what year, oh, 1981. Do my, like, oh, wow, might be something here. Uh, Rick James performed at New Year's 
Rockin' Eve, December 31st. 1982. It's 1-6-2022. Almost, be almost 40 years. I guess it would be almost 39 years uh, to the day. He celebrated and performed New Year's Rock and Eve. They do the ball drop and everything that I think was suspended this year or muted somewhat this year because of COVID. He performed Super Freak. Alice Ebold could have been there. I mean, even pointing that out, he was in New York City, New Year's Eve, 1982. I suspect she was still a Syracuse student. He could drive from Syracuse to New York City. She could have been there in the crowd. Super freaky. Heroin and all that. Hey, they got that in common, right? We can do some drugs together. But little things like that. I'm like, Wow. Is he really doing Super Freak Live for New Year's Eve? Like Dick Clark special, he was doing Super Freak for New Year's Eve, uh, 1982? Yes. Signal from the creator, continuing. A lot of the, the woe is me, lowly white woman in this week, she uh, refers to testing, irritated that she was just a small woman, small white woman with no power, which... <laughs> Come on. Uh, let's see. Next, she says, the DA is flirting with Tess, this professor, and she's experienced deflecting all the sexism and misogyny and toxic masculinity that she has to battle through to get no count Gregory Madison. Uh, let's see. Uh, so the attorney for... Mr. Broadwater apparently agreed not to contest identification. Jesus Christ. This is the difference in having Johnny Cochran or having some no-count public offender. Public defender, excuse me. Like, uh, something that technical, let's contest the identification, especially since she didn't even get to see the guy that they arrested. How do you even know that you got the correct person? Let's contest the identification. Let's contest everything. In fact, make sure they have dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's. Let's see. The way she describes Mr. Madison's attorneys, who, again, I suspect were no Johnny Cochran's, uh, both defense attorneys who represented Madison over the course of the year shared certain traits. Now, I would even like to know why did he switch attorneys? Was there a problem? Did they not want to do the case? Did he just have a lame public defender who, who you know, got reassigned or whatever, got a new job? What happened? Uh, she describes his attorneys as they were shortish, balding, and had something fetid going on on their upper lips. She says... Uh, I felt as if I was go- I felt if I was going to win, I had to hate the attorneys representing him. They may have been earning a paycheck or randomly assigned to the case, had children they loved, or a terminally ill mother to take care of. I didn't care. They were there to destroy me. I was there to fight back. Now, I mean, that is, you know, I don't think Effie Bailey at all are there to destroy her. I uh, think they would advocate for their client pursuit of justice. That's the only way that they to destroy you. Like, what do you mean? Take away your scholarships? You can't go to school anymore? 
Uh, let's see. She says the tone of his voice was condemning as if I had been a bad little girl and had told a lie. Now, she has a lot of that, as though she's being treated like uh, a child in all of this. Incidentally, she is still a teenage student, but I mean, whatever. You have rallied all of these armed white men to go beat up random black people on the streets and then Mr. Broadwater and all the rest, but you feel as though you're not fully empowered as a white woman? Intersectionality, yes, yes. Uh, let's see. She says, they go through all this about her prescription for her glasses, and she doesn't know what he's doing. She's trying to figure all this out. Uh, he wanted to back me into a maze. Mr. Broadwater's attorney, um, Augusto, I couldn't get out of. I was determined. I felt I had what Gallagher had, metal. I could feel it in my veins. Only because I listened to that Charlie Rose interview from 2002. But oh no, that's not what was in your veins. Aaron. Let's see. She continues, this is talking about the attorney. There was now not even a trace of respect in his tones, in that he had not gotten the best of me. He had switched into a sort of hateful overdrive. What? What does that even mean? I felt threatened by him. That that is classic, classic way. I'm threatened. I'm threatened. You're in a court of law. They generally have bailiffs, armed white men. This might be a public defender. Like he doesn't care about you. I'm not even being paid. Not paid well enough to properly represent this raping Negro. Or could be raping Negro, or maybe raping Negro, or whatever. Like, let's get through this. I got other things to do. How to destroy you? Oh, what are you even talking about? Let me answer these questions so we can go. Let's see. And the other thing I have to say, this book was published in 1999. She's talking about looking back with hindsight. I wish I had told that attorney that none of this talk about my glasses made me blind. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You published this book nearly 20 years after this rape. The trial was in 1982. This book was published in 1999. You got a conviction here. There's no reason for you to be looking back bitter and salty about the court experience. None whatsoever. You got what you wanted. I mean, unless you wanted the death penalty, unless you wanted to actually do some castration. You got a conviction, 16 years, and you didn't even get the right person. How could you possibly be looking back and, oh, I wish I had said this shit that it put him in. Like, what are you talking about? Like, like you were wronged in this process somehow? Let's see. Just, I felt hushed by him. The gloves were off. Again, what are you talking about? Like, all of these violent, dramatic metaphors as though she's being raped and tumbled on the stand like they're asking you questions. That's the procedure. Uh, let's see. He emphasized Calvin Klein with a sneer when talking about her clothes. I was unprepared for it come to this. I mean, I mean, again, I would need like audio. Like, let me hear <laughs> like a smear, really. 
I'm sure there's other people in the courtroom wearing Calvin Klein, like very popular brand, right? Let's see. She all this talk about the judge and the prosecutors being fatigued and they just wanted to get this over with and get to lunch again. She wrote this nearly two decades after the trial. They got a conviction. There's no evidence that white people in this case, or even right now, 2022, are lame and lax about rape allegations involving a black male raping a white woman. There's no history of white men or white women being lame and lax and we don't care and we're tired. Let me get a sandwich. But that's just, just not that didn't even happen in this case. I thought it was so important. I brought this up last week. Like, man, they are the enforcement officers in Syracuse were celebrating, doing the old Norm Stamper right on. We got another rape Negro off the street. She hadn't even seen the person that they arrested. How do you know this is the right guy? Her attorney adroitly bringing that up in trial. You don't know. And she gets her little attitude like, I don't know what he's trying to make. I wasn't there when he was arrested. We're just trying to clarify. Again, can you just answer the question? If we are tired, hurry up and answer the question so we have to keep going through this. You actually didn't see the person that they put the handcuffs on, right? Right. So we have an ID card. Now, again, just why ways contesting the identification? My God, who was the idiot that did that? I hope it wasn't the same attorney. Um. Yeah, and I feel all that. I feel like even uh, Seabold, I feel like there are lots of points now in the book, I feel like where she's being dishonest. This is another one to just chalk all this up to saying, well, of course I didn't work for the police department. That's not the point. I mean, even you, as a rape victim, so-called, let me see this guy to make sure that you got the right person. How do I know? How do you even know? Why are you so confident? Or is it any nigga will do? Let's see. Oh, someone brought this up last week. They compared this to Lucky Bones. Uh, and they said in Lucky Bones, uh, the second book that Seabold wrote, which is fiction, the parents, the white parents, one of whom is Mark Wahlberg, convicted terrorist, almost talking about cutting out somebody's eyes. Uh, in that film, the parents are just overwhelmed with grief about their daughter and consumed by it. Now, the mom ends up running off and having an affair. She goes to California, you know, super freak. Um, but Mark Wahlberg, the dad in particular, is really consumed by this and wants to find the killer and just, just tore, goes to his daughter's room and, oh, just, you know, killed her. Uh, the whole family. And they were saying, Maybe she wrote that because that's the response that she wanted from her parents in this, and she didn't get it. Parents didn't come to court with her. She talks about that this week, and, you know, I could have made excuses for them. But they could have been there. Dad could have taken a day out of teaching, and mom could have drove up here and all that. She didn't get appropriate attention from her parents about all of this. Important since that comes up so blatantly this week. Her, you know, talking directly, explicitly, her moaning about all of this. Uh, let's see. 
chapter 9. I have been to the Carrier Dome. I told you I accepted at Syracuse. I could have been a fellow uh, Orangeman, Donovan McNabb. Uh, let's see. Explicitly, she's so direct, and it's every time about identifying explicitly. She never identifies anyone as white. It's only the non-white people. There was the one Latina who didn't want to comment on her poem, who she identifies, racial classification. She doesn't do this for anyone except the individuals who are not white. Uh, let's see. Again, she's so excited about the assistant district attorney, uh, Ubeler. Uh, who is a white woman in this all-male environment. Certainly got lots more white attorneys now. Uh, let's see. The scene where she talks about, I guess there was some sort of error with the mugshot. They had the lineup. Black males were present. And so they were bringing them out, and I guess they took them the wrong way, and they could have maybe got a glimpse of her really quick or what have you. I don't even know if I believe that. It's just another one of those, oh, my gosh, the threatening black males and my greatest fear and all the rest of it. Certainly police make errors and all the rest of it, but just there are a lot of parts uh, about this book at this point that I do not believe. Uh, and apparently, at least a few other white people picked up spots, some of which read right now, and or parts that we will read later. They do not believe. So lots of reasons to be suspicious. Uh, let's see. Any other? The whole way that she paints herself as a victim with her incorrect identification that she felt like a child uh, that's just white people playing the role of a victim, uh, and I think it's so tacky and disgraceful here. You have your attorney here. You have all of this is for you. There's no pressure on you, and I'm not going to jail about all of this. You even picked the wrong person, and they still cleaned it up and, and got a conviction of the wrong person here. Lots of other things, lots of other ways that this could have been carried out as opposed to I'm going to portray this as they pressured me and made the rape crisis representative leave. They weren't getting along. And I just said, please, you're a white woman. You have your representative. District attorney is there advising you to take your time, all that, telling you what to do, all the rest of it. Please. You're confident you know who did this. You can make an identification, and particularly, look at that photograph. Do any of the people in that lineup look like they could be twins? Until justice, and until justice, take a gander uh, at the five Negro males that they have in the lineup. Now, I have to research. I haven't seen that to verify if Mr. Broadwater did that, if he did you know, find a so-called friend to come down to the lineup. And being with him, I cannot imagine. I mean, wow. He is a retired firefighter. Uh, hey, Gus. Heard you in town. Uh, they got me uh, downtown on a rape charge, and uh, I didn't do it. It's a white woman. And uh, I don't think I don't think they got a good lineup. So can you come down and be in the lineup of like, man, I'm hanging up on retired fire as fast as can be. 
much obliged for your years of support and all the rest of it, but I mean, you are out of your mind. I don't mean, what? <laughs> what? What does this conversation even take place? Like, are you calling me from the lineup? You're in police custody asking me to come down and join you in a rape lineup? <laughs> Anyway, yes, yes, it is the type of thing where you feel like they have put you in a lot of where nobody looks like you. You're really going to stand out. And if they're saying that the, the height description for this person is 5'7", and they got a whole line of people who are about six feet tall, and you're the only one that's 5'8", like, okay, I can see, you know, can we, you know, try to do something to <laughs> make this a little bit better. But I don't know if I would be calling my friends even associates, really, uh, to come and, I mean, man. Anyway, uh, let's see. Mm-mm-mm. She says five black men, almost identical light blue shirts and dark blue pants, walked and assumed at their places. This is not five identical black males. Not by a long shot. Uh, they might have on similar clothing, and that's about it. But, I mean, this is not five identical black males by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, let's see. The descriptions of the black males, gee whiz. Now, this sounds like <laughs> total fiction writing to me. He was not looking at me. While he looked toward the floor, I saw his shoulders wide like my rapist and powerful. The shape of his head and neck, just like my rapist. His build, his nose, his lips. I hugged my arms across my chest. Now that's Anthony Broadhart that she's talking about, but I mean... (laughs) all of that, and it even sounds like one of our female listeners wrote in last week that this sounds like the rape fantasy. I was talking to B in Toronto, and I told her reading this reminded me. We had a white guest, white male on the program in 2012. Pam referenced some of his work in uh, one of her books. He wrote a blog post about white males and their fetish, white gay males specifically, and the genre of pornography where they love white males being gang raped by black males. That's enjoyable. Large segment of white men. We talked about this, Cal's Archive, 2012. That's what this reminds me of a little bit as well. Super freak. Now, as I continue, uh, she moves on. I moved on to number five. Now, this person that she picks, his build was right, his height, and he was looking at me, looking right at me as if he knew I was there, knew who I was. The expression in his eyes told me that if we were alone, if there were no wall between us, he would call me by name and then kill me. His eyes gripped on and controlled. I mustered all my energy and turned around. Now, take what I just said. So, let's, I'm going to go back. 
retired firefighter has, hey, Gus, come down, do the lineup and all that. And he's going to add on. Now, the way we're going to work this, I'm going to look pitiful and sad. I don't even know why I ended up here. What I want you to do, I want you to give your meanest Negro style. I mean, you look like you're burning through that wall. If anybody looks at you wrong, I'll kill you in this thick. What in the hell? <laughs> so I'm going to come down and do this, and then if I get picked in the lineup, the recourse is, in 1981, for a black male, the recourse is, you'll give me a really good attorney, not this Modesto fella, a really good attorney, like, instead of Anthony Broadwater doing the 16 years, I do the 16 years? Come on. Come on. That's why I said, like, this is not believable at all. I did not feel this strong when we first started out because I didn't really know. I hadn't read it yet. But, I mean, four weeks in, a million people read this, and nobody had any questions about this for over 20 years. They were going to make this a movie in 2022. What black male? Oh, and they said, I've got to read the news. They were going to change the rapist to a white guy. So you don't have a movie. You can't even do that. It's not even possible. They were going to, they, they had a Negro consultant. I guess I shouldn't say, well, whatever. They had a Negro consultant. And he told them, like, man, this could uh, get some black males killed. Like, I don't know. Do we need this to be produced? And so they said, uh, we'll change the rapist to a white man. That's not this book. There is no way. The rapist can be a white. So you're going to write a poem about castrating a white man? How does the Syracuse police officers, they go out and just beat up three random white guys in this? It's not even possible. It's got to be a Negro rapist. Let's see. She says, in the conference room, I searched the eyes of the uniformed man for whether I had chosen the right one, but his face was impassive. I felt a wave of nausea hit me and placed the floor in between the conference table and a row of chairs against the wall. My throat was thick and clogged. I became convinced in those moments that I had chosen the wrong man. I told myself I acted on impulse, not considered the two men and their postures long enough. I had been so intent on getting it over with that I hadn't been thorough. Ever since I'd been little, my parents had accused me of this, not taking my time, acting rashly, jumping the gun. So we got all these metaphors tied up again. Like, none of that is believable. You're not being pressured. Nobody is standing with a pick somebody, pick somebody. They were telling you the exact opposite. Take all the time you need. Be sure. Make them rotate. You can make these niggers do whatever you want. Probably could have got them to say something so you could hear their voices, too, since he, you all talked for all this time in the tunnel, right? You going to blame this to going back to your childhood? You being impulsive and rash? No, I just think you're a lying white woman. Let's see. The samples of the... <sighs> Got to go back and get that report for 2015. All this is bogus. Uh, all this is bogus. This hair stuff, the FBI came out and apologized. It was in uh, the paper. It was not front page 
but it was in the paper, and they didn't say it was one. They didn't even mention Anthony Broadwater when all this came out in 2015. What they said was there were hundreds of these cases where they went in and said, oh, yeah, we got these hair fibers. They're an exact match, identical. Definitely can't be anybody else. Like, 1,000% sure match to then wait and come out. And so this is this trial was 1982. They come out in 2015 with the, whoops, our bad. Call it junk science. Pseudoscientific BS. I think that's how Tim Wise uh, said it. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Ubo Holder had told me the defense was building a case based on misidentification. Duh. A panicked white girl saw a black man on the street. He spoke familiarly to her, and in her mind, she connected this to her rape. She was accusing the wrong man. The lineup went directly to this. Duh. Even though I don't think the rape thing happens like this is way too, way too bogus. Um, she continues. That's why I said, this isn't about anything but white supremacy racism. This is just black beast rapist literature. Lots of that. Tons of these narratives all throughout. Uh, I compared four and five and noted they look similar. And at Until Justice, you can see, do you think they look similar? With four's features being a bit flatter and broader than the suspects. I said that four had been looking down the whole time and that I chose five because he was looking right at me. I added that I had felt rushed and defense counsel's refusal to allow a member of rape crisis in the lineup room had further intimidated me. Intimidated. I said that I never got a good look at four's eyes and said again that I chose five because he was looking at me. These just strike me as the lamest excuses in the world. Are you telling me that, you know, lineup I can come in and I'm going to just look at the floor? I've never been in the lineup, but I think they tell you to look straight ahead. No, I'm going to look at the floor. And so you just got one Negro male out of five, and he just looks at the floor the whole time. And it just happens to be that this is the guilty one. You don't pick him. You pick the other guy who's over here, er, mean mugging you. Who has been, this is all a conspiracy to make you pick the one. This isn't even a good lie. It's not believable. It really, I would just keep pointing out, they were about to make this into a movie. A million people read this, and they didn't come to the conclusion that I did. A million people read this. They didn't think Alice Seabold is a super freak. They thought this was a really harrowing story. That Gregory Madison is a beast. That's what they thought. A million people. And apparently, you probably had some victims who read this. Certainly, we would have watched the movie, a number of us. Double check, see if folks have any thoughts to get in. Again, I hope the audio did not get messed up for folks who are trying to listen in. I know folks did email in and said there was may have been some interference. So hopefully at minimum folks can listen to the archives and study. Let's see. Uh Henry in Chicago, home of Emmett Hill, who knows something about all of this. Uh Tom and Terry, sure. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. 
Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, it's still kind of choppy, but I, I think I can still hear you and understand you. Uh, just to, you know, just to let you know. Uh, so, I guess in this reading, uh, the the the, uh, the cross examination uh, of her with the uh, with the defense lawyer. Uh, it's interesting when she talks about you know. Uh, how they were short and balding and had something going on with their upper lip. And she specifically, you know, zoomed in on, uh, on the, uh, on the, on the primary defense attorney that was questioning him, uh, talking about his ugliness. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, because of the fact that he's doing his job, uh, he has to be ugly, you know, especially, you know, he's defending a black man. That's, that makes him even more uglier. And speaking of the defense, uh, you know, it's interesting how they're, they're, they're trying to make their case uh, for uh, the, the, the black victim uh, as, you know, her have her having, uh, not having good sight. It's, it, uh, it, not in particularly, and this is what I always suspected in the first couple of pages, that the rape actually never happened. So, you know, I, I find that very interesting. Uh, I, I often wondered if if the uh, uh, accused was a white man, would this lawyer be making that type of defense? Uh, for me, I would say no. He'll probably be making the defense that the rape never happened. So I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. Um, you know, when she mentioned about, uh, going back to, uh, class with the classics, uh, when she was talking about, uh, she was reading, uh, Catutus, Sappho, Apollonius, and, uh, Lysistrata, uh, the, the play Lysistrata, uh, I feel like she's in certain, like, some literary tropes uh, that basically kind of overarchs the theme of this story that she's saying, you know, that she's talking about. Because, you know, I was doing some research on these on these poets and and and, and this play. Well, she explains the play, and I think uh, you, uh, a person I emailed had mentioned about the Spike Lee movie. But uh, Catullus and Sappho are poets uh, from the Roman era, and they have a lot of sexual explicitness in their poetry. Uh, in particular, Sappho, who is, uh, who basically is a, is a female and she talks about uh, lesbianism or homosexuality or anti-sexual behavior. And I thought that was interesting considering, you know, Catutus, uh with the sexual explicitness, you know, it's sexual endos all in this story. Uh, you just mentioned Super Freak, uh, Sappho. Uh, we read some earlier some homosexual, you know, descriptions or you know feelings or whatever uh, that was touched upon. Uh, Apollonius is an interesting one because that's a philosopher who is kind of like a Jesus type of figure in the in the Roman, uh, you know, during Roman times. And I guess this kind of plays on, you know, her her church upbringings, and uh, I think it was St. Peter's or something like that. So, uh, 
Yeah, I kind of find it strange that she puts these literary, tr- it's like almost like literary metaphors of what the story is about. So uh, it's more of a, it's more of a, 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 you know, of what a fictional author would do. <laughs> so that's why I, I kind of like, uh, you know, I was like, wow, you know, this looks interesting. Uh, and also to uh, the uh, the emphasis in chapter nine, uh, I was looking at, you know, the pubic hair, you know, how the Sergeant, uh, was it Sergeant Lorenzo smiled when he was telling me that he picked Madison's pubic hair. It had to be plucked, not cut, uh, you know, uh, delectable Negro type of stuff. Uh, you know, that's the first thing that I thought of when uh, when that you know, when I read that line, so, and, and it is also said that uh, he, uh, she said that he was being jolly in front of me as well, so, you know, uh, like I said, delectable Negro, a white man plucking pubic hairs, gets him excited, so, but uh, the more I read this, and like I said, I, from the beginning, I thought this was kind of a, this was a made-up story, I don't think this was a case of mistaken identity, Uh She's kind of making all of this up, and I, you know, I still believe that. So uh, that's all I have on my mind. Much obliged, Henry in Chicago. Thank you for letting me know. The audio uh, being choppy looks at issues uh, today for some reason. Um, excellent job with the background on some of the Greek lists that was mentioned. Uh, I am not a student of uh, Greek lit and did not take the time to get all the sexual references and such in these plays. And, uh, hey, she is a fiction. Lovely Bones, a work of fiction. Some might say this is a work of fiction. Hmm. Um, let's see. The... Oh, the pubic hairs, delectable Negro, indeed. I don't know what the difference is, and then being cut or plucked, but again, and now, I mean, hey, a white man being excited about it, too, coming back with a jolly smile. Like, why would that be something to be gleeful about? You go and pluck the pubic hairs from a Negro rapist. He can do it himself. How about we just witness? The hair junk science pseudo. There is your pseudo scientific BS right there. Uh, let's see. Uh, Irie, if you were able to see the photo of the lineup, let us know if you think four and five look like plants. I think she played it own propaganda, i.e. talked openly about the rape and showed off her injuries to mentally supplant the event in the minds of people that saw her as a tactic for selling the book in the future. I may not be saying what I mean correctly, but I think she knew she book about her encounter once she reported it to the police. She said she had been working on this book for a while. Wouldn't it help book sales for those 
she told me that she was going to ask me questions about the events of that night, that she would then lead up to my ability to identify the rapist and my identification of Officer Clapper at the same time. She wanted me to state clearly that I hadn't been sure between four and five and to say why. She told me to take as much time as I needed on each answer and not to feel hurried. This will be easier than the preliminary hearing, Alice. Just stay with me. I may seem colder to you in there than I am right now, but remember, we're in there to win an indictment, and to a certain extent, well, the grand jury is made up of 25 civilians, and we're on stage. She left me. A few minutes later, I was led into the room. Again, I was unprepared for the room's effect on me. 
The witness stand was at the bottom of the room. Leading up and out from the stand were terraced levels on which swiveling orange chairs were permanently affixed. The levels spread out in a circular arc and grew larger as they ascended. There were enough seats for the 25 members of the jury and for the alternates who sat through all the cases but might never cast a vote. The result of the room's design was that all eyes bore down on whoever was seated in the witness stand. There was no defense table or prosecutor's table. Gail did as she had said she would. She used a courtroom manner. She made a lot of eye contact with the jurors, used hand gestures, and spent time enunciating key words or phrases she wanted them to note and remember. Her pattern of questioning also was meant to calm both me and the jurors. She had told me rape cases were hard for them. I saw proof of this soon enough. When she asked me where he had touched me, and in my answer, I had to say that he had put his fist in my vagina. Many of the jurors looked down or immediately away from me. But the fact that troubled them most was what came next. Eubelair questioned me about bleeding. How much blood? Why so much? She asked me if I had been a virgin. I said, yes. They winced. They felt pity. Throughout the remaining questions, some of the jurors, and not all of them women, fought back tears. I was aware my loss that night was my gain today. Having been a virgin made me look good, made the crime appear worse. I did not want their pity. I wanted to win. But their reactions pushed me to think about what I was saying, not just tally it up as a pro or con in terms of the chances for a conviction. The tears of one particular man in the second row felled me. I cried a little then. The reality was that this, too, made me look good. The sketch I drew the night of October 5th was entered into evidence and marked for identification. Eubelair asked pointed questions about whether I had been assisted in the sketch, whether the handwriting was mine, whether anyone had influenced it. She moved on to the lineup. Now the questioning was more heated. Like a surgeon with a probe, she brought forth each nuance of the five minutes I'd spent inside that room. Finally, she asked me if I was certain I had identified the right man. I answered, no. Then she asked me why I had chosen number five. I explained in detail his height and his build. I talked about the eyes. Eventually, it came time for the jurors to ask their questions. Juror, when you saw the police officer up on Marshall Street, why didn't you go to him then? Juror, you picked him out of the lineup. Are you absolutely sure that this was the one? Juror, Alice, why were you coming through the park alone at night? Do you usually go through by yourself? Juror, didn't anybody warn you not to go through the park at night? Juror, didn't you know that you were not supposed to go through the park after 9.30 at night? Didn't you know that? Juror, could you have definitely eliminated number four? Did he ever look at you? I answered all of these questions patiently. The questions concerning the lineup I answered directly and truthfully. But the questions about what I had been doing in the park or why I hadn't gone up to Officer Clapper made me numb. They were not getting it. That's how it felt. But, as Gail had said, we were on stage. On television and in the movies, 
the lawyer often says to the victim before they take the stand, just tell the truth. What it was left up to me to figure out was that if you do that and nothing else, you lose. So I told them I was stupid, that I shouldn't have walked through the park. I said I intended to do something to warn girls at the university about the park, and I was so good, so willing to accept blame, that I hoped to be judged innocent by them. That day it all got raw. If Madison stood next to his friend and played a game of eyes to psych me out, then I would give it right back to him. I was authentic. I had been a virgin. He had broken my hymen in two places. The OBGYN would testify to the fact. I was also a good girl, and I knew how to dress and what to say to accentuate that. That night, following the grand jury testimony, I called Madison a motherfucker in the privacy of my dorm room while I pounded my pillow in bed with my fists. I swore the kind of bloodthirsty revenge no one thought possible coming from a 19-year-old co-ed. While still in court, I thanked the jury. I drew on my resources, performing, placating, making my family smile. As I left the courtroom, I felt I had put on the best show of my life. It was no longer hand-to-hand, and I had a chance this time. I went out to sit in the waiting area. Detective Lorenz was there. He wore a black patch over one of his eyes. What happened, I asked. I was horrified. We chased a perp, and he ran, hit me in the eye with a mace. How'd you do in there? Okay, I guess. Listen, he said. He began to fumble out an apology. He said he was sorry if he hadn't seemed very nice back in May. You get a lot of rape cases, he said. Most of them never get this far. I'm pulling for you. I assured him that he had always been wonderful to me, that the police had all been wonderful. I meant every word of it. Fifteen years later, when doing research for this book, I would find sentences he had written in the original paperwork. May 8, 1981. It is this writer's opinion, after interview of the victim, that this case, as presented by the victim, is not completely factual. After interviewing Ken Childs later that same day, he wrote, Childs describes their relationship as casual. It is still this writer's opinion that there were extenuating circumstances to this incident, as reported by victim, and it is suggested that this case be referred to the inactive file. But after meeting with Jubilair on October 13, 1981, it should be noted that when this writer first interviewed the victim at approximately 0800 on May 8, 1981, she appeared to be disoriented about the facts of the incident and disconcerted as she kept dozing off. This writer now realizes that the victim had been through a tremendous ordeal with no sleep for approximately 24 hours, which would account for her behavior at the time. For Lorenz, virgins were not a part of his world. He was skeptical of many things I said. Later, when the serology reports proved that what I had said was not a lie, that I had been a virgin, and that I was telling the truth, he could not respect me enough. I think he felt responsible somehow. It was, after all, in his world where this hideous thing had happened to me, a world of violent crime. Maria Flores, from Tessa's workshop, fell from a window. 
That was how the Daily Orange, Syracuse's campus paper, reported it. They used her name and said it was an accident. As the students filed into the English department conference room for workshop, only one or two of us had seen the item in the paper. I hadn't. Apparently, the paper said Flores, though badly injured in the accident, had miraculously survived. She was in the hospital. Tess was late. When she came in, the room hushed. She sat down at the head of the table and tried to start class. She was clearly upset. Did you hear about Maria? One of the students asked. Tess hung her head. Yes, she said. It's horrible. Is she okay? I just spoke to her, she said. I'm going to see her at the hospital. It's always so difficult, this poetry business. We didn't quite understand. What did Maria's accident have to do with poetry? It was in the paper, a student volunteered. Tess looked at him sharply. They used her name? What is it, Tess? someone asked. Our question was answered the following day, when an almost identical article described it as an attempted suicide. The only other difference was that this time the paper left out her name. It didn't take a genius to put two and two together. Tess had told me it would mean quite a bit to Maria if I went to visit her in the hospital. That was a powerful poem you wrote, she added, but didn't say what else she knew. I went, but before I did, Maria made another unsuccessful attempt. She tried to kill herself by cutting an electrical cord near her bed, unfurling the wires inside and scoring them over and over against her wrists. She'd done this while partially paralyzed on her left side, but a nurse had walked in on her, and now her arms were strapped to the bed. She was in Krauss Irving Memorial Hospital. A nurse led me into the room. Standing beside Maria's bed were her father and her brothers. I waved to Maria and then shook the men's hands. I said my name and that I was in her poetry class. None of them was very responsive. I attributed this to shock and to what might have seemed the strange phenomenon of this woman visiting who appeared to have some connection with her that they, her father and brothers, didn't. They left the room. Thank you for coming, she said in a whisper. She wanted to hold my hand. The two of us didn't really know each other, had just shared Tessa's class, and, until recently, I had harbored a bit of resentment toward the fact that she'd walked out on my workshop. Can you sit? she asked. Yes, I did. It was your poem, she said now. It brought it all back. I sat there as she whispered to me her own facts. The man and the boys who had just left the room had raped her for a period of years when she was growing up. At a certain point it stopped, she said. My brothers grew old enough to know what they were doing was wrong. Oh, Maria, I said, I never meant to. Stop. It's good. I need to face it. Have you told your mother? She said she didn't want to hear it. She promised she would not tell my father as long as I never mentioned it again. She's not speaking to me. I looked at all the get well cards above her bed. She was a resident advisor, and all the residents on the hall, as well as her friends, had sent cards. I was struck with what was painfully clear. By jumping but surviving, she was now completely dependent on her family to take care of her, on her father. Have you told Tess? 
Her face lit up. Tess has been wonderful. I know. Your poem said all the things I've been feeling inside for years, all the things I'm so afraid of feeling. Is that good, I asked. We'll see, she said, and smiled weakly. Maria would recover from the fall and return to school. For a time, she severed relations with her family. But that day, we joked that she sure had commented on my poem by jumping, and that Tess would have to give her that. Then I talked. I talked because she wanted me to, and because here, next to her, I could. I told her about the grand jury and the lineup and about Gail. You're so lucky, she said. I'll never get to do any of that. I want you to go all the way. We were still holding hands. Every moment in that room was precious to both of us. I looked up eventually and noticed her father standing in the door. Maria couldn't see him, but she saw my eyes. He did not leave or advance. He was waiting for me to get up and go. I felt this radiate from where he stood. He didn't know exactly what was going on between us, but there was something he seemed not to trust. By November 16th, the, quote, known pubic hair sample from Gregory Madison, end quote, and the, quote, nigroid pubic hair recovered from pubic combings of Alice Siebold, May 1981, end quote, had been compared. The lab found that on 17 points of microscopic comparison, the hairs had matched on all 17. On November 18th, Gail drafted an inter-office letter for the files. She posted it on the 23rd. There is no question this was a rape. Victim was a virgin and hymen was torn in two places. Lab reports show semen and medicals show contusions and lacerations. Identification is at issue. Rape was May 8, 1981, and victim gave detailed description to cops, but no arrest made. She goes back to Pennsylvania May 9, 1981. When she returns to SU in the fall, she spots defendant on street, and he approaches her and says, Hey girl, don't I know you from somewhere? She runs and calls cops. I had a lineup and she IDs wrong guy, who was a dead ringer for defendant and standing right next to him and who defendant personally requested. Later, she tells cops that she thought it could have been either the defendant or the other guy. Defendant's pubic hair was found to be consistent with one found in her pubic combings. There was a partial print on the weapon, knife, found at the scene, but it has insufficient ridge details to make a comparison. I had it sent to FBI for more testing. Lab advises they cannot determine blood type from semen because it is too tainted with her blood. Good luck. Victim is excellent witness. I returned home to Pennsylvania for Thanksgiving. One day after coming back to Syracuse on Greyhound, there was a letter waiting for me at my dorm. Pursuant to your request, it read in part, this is to advise you that the above-mentioned captioned defendant has been indicted by the grand jury. I was thrilled. I stood in my single at Haven and shook with it. I called my mother and told her. I was moving forward. The trial seemed imminent any day now.
I was in class when Madison entered his plea on December 4th before Justice Walter T. Gorman. On an eight-count indictment, Madison pled not guilty. A pretrial hearing was scheduled for December 9th. Paquette, representing Madison, admitted to one petty larceny conviction, back somewhere. The state didn't know enough to counter him, and Madison's juvenile record could not be considered. When Gorman asked Assistant D.A. Plachocki, who was representing the state because Gale was in another court, if he wanted to be heard on bail, Plachocki said, Judge, I don't have the file. So bail was set at $5,000. Mistakenly, through Christmas and New Year's, I joyfully pictured my assailant in jail. Before I went home for the Christmas holidays, I'd taken an incomplete in Italian 101, a C- minus in Classics, a B in Tessa's survey course, my paper wasn't quite up to snuff, and two A's, one in Wolf's workshop, one in Gallagher's. I saw Steve Carbonaro. He had given up Don Quixote and taken to keeping a bottle of Chivas Regal in his apartment near Penn. He scoured flea markets for old threadbare oriental rugs, wore a satin smoking jacket, smoked a pipe, and wrote sonnets for a new girlfriend whose name he loved, Juliet. Through his window, with the lights turned off in his own apartment, he watched two extroverted lovers who lived in an apartment across the way. I didn't like the taste of scotch and thought the pipe was stupid. My sister was still a virgin at 22, I spent time wishing she were less pristine. I know she spent time wishing she were less pristine, too. But our motivations were different. I wanted her to fall, for that was how it was seen in our household, so I wouldn't be alone. She wanted to fall so that she would have more in common with most of her friends. We lived unhappily on either side of the word. She was one, I wasn't one. At first, my mother had joked about how the rape might put an end to her lectures on virginity, so now she would lecture me on chastity. But something in this didn't work. It would appear odd if my mother emphasized in my sister the old rules, but made new ones up for me. I had moved by being raped to a category she found unaddressable. So I did what I did with the hardest issues. I took the fallback position of the Seabolds a thorough analysis of the semantics involved. I looked up all the words and versions, virgin, virginity, virginal, chaste, chastity. When the definitions didn't provide me with what I wanted, I manipulated the language and redefined the words. The end result was that I claimed myself still a virgin. I had not lost my virginity, I said. It was taken from me. Therefore, I would decide when and what virginity was. I called what I still had to lose my real virginity. Like my reasons for not sleeping with Steve or for returning to Syracuse, this seemed airtight to me. It wasn't. A lot of what I figured out and subverted wasn't airtight in the least, but I couldn't admit to that then. I also created a painful reasoning for why it was better to have been raped as a virgin. I think it's better that I was raped as a virgin, I told people. I don't have any sexual associations with it like other women do. It was pure violence. This way, when I do have normal sex, the difference between sex and violence will be very clear to me. I wonder now who bought it. 
Even with classes and court appearances, I had found time to nurse a crush. His name was Jamie Waller, and he was a student in Wolf's workshop. He was older, 26, and friends with another student in our class, Chris Davis. Chris was gay. I thought this marked Jamie, who was straight, as a highly evolved male. If he could be so openly comfortable in the company of a gay man, I reasoned, he might be able to find a rape victim okay. I managed to do all the things love-struck girls do. I had Lila meet me after class so she could get a look at him. Back of the dorm, we discussed how cute he was. Each time I saw him, I would detail for her what he was wearing. He was a master of what I called shoddy prep. He wore rag wool sweaters with egg stains on them, and his Brooks Brothers boxers often peeked out of his wide whale cords. He lived off campus in an apartment and had a car. He went skiing on the weekends. He had what I wanted, a life apart. I mooned over him in private. In public, I pretended I was tough. I hated the way I looked. I thought I was fat and ugly and weird. But even if he could never find me physically attractive, he still liked a good story, and he liked to get drunk. I could tell one and do the other. Following Wolf's workshop, Chris, Jamie, and I would grab a few drinks. Then Jamie would say, Well, kids, I'm taking off. What are you two doing this weekend? Chris and I never had good answers. We both felt lame. My weekends consisted of waiting for the grand jury and then what followed. Chris later admitted that his weekends had been committed to going to the gay bars in downtown Syracuse and trying, without success, to find a boyfriend. Chris and I both overate and drank too much coffee while reading good poetry. When we wrote a poem of our own that we didn't despise, we might call each other and read it aloud. We were lonely and hated ourselves. We kept each other laughing, bitterly, and waited for Jamie, fresh and back from a weekend at Stowe or Hunter Mountain, to fill our dismal lives. There was the night that fall when I told the two of them about the rape. All three of us were drunk. It was after a reading or a workshop, and we had gone to a bar on Marshall Street. It was a bar a bit nicer than most of the student bars, which were more like caverns. I don't remember how it came out. It was in the day or two before the lineup, and so it was all I was thinking about. Chris was stunned, and the news had the effect of making him drunker. His brother Ben had been murdered two years before, though I didn't know this then. It was Jamie whom I cared about, Jamie I imagined myself falling in love with and marrying. However he responded, it could not have fulfilled the rescue fantasy I had fabricated. Nothing could. There was no rescue. The table was awkward for a second, and then Jamie found the answer. He ordered another round of drinks. Jamie drove home alone in his car to his off-campus apartment. Chris, who lived in the opposite direction, walked me home. I lay on the bed and the room spun. I didn't like how drinking felt, but I liked how it released me. News slipped out and the world didn't explode, and eventually I could count on passing out. I had a headache in the morning, and I always threw up, but Jamie, and everyone, it seemed, liked me when I was drunk. The added bonus? I often didn't remember much.
After Christmas, we drank more frequently, often without Chris. Jamie told me he had come back to finish his diploma after nursing his father through a protracted terminal illness. He confided that he owned a women's clothing store in Utica and had to go down often to look in on it. All this made him more glamorous, but what I really liked about Jamie was his no-bullshit factor. He ate and belched. He slept around. He'd lost his virginity way before I had. He was something like 14, and she was older. I never had a chance, he would say, take a sip of beer from a long neck or wine from a glass and snort gleefully. He joked about how many women he'd had and told stories about being caught with married women by their husbands. I didn't feel comfortable hearing a lot of this. His promiscuity seemed inconceivable, but it also meant that he had seen and done it all. There were no surprises. In his eyes, I would not be a freak. Jamie was not a nice boy, but having a nice boy think of me as special was what I wanted least. He listened patiently to what was going on in my life, about Gail or the lineup or my fear of going to trial. In the weeks that turned into months after the Christmas holiday, I lived in constant anticipation of the trial. Repeatedly, it was pushed back. A pretrial hearing was set for January 22nd, and I went. It was canceled, but I still had to show up, prep with the DA Bill Mastine, and with Gail, who was now pregnant, and so handing most of the reins over to Mastine. I saw in Jamie a recognition that the two of us were oddballs. He had gone through a lot with his father and believed that at 19 I was distinguished by the rape from most of my peers. But instead of making me feel my feelings, as Tricia from the Rape Crisis Center would want, he taught me how to drink. And I did. Jamie and I talked about sex, and I told a lie. In the bar one night, Jamie asked me, it fell offhand, if I'd slept with anyone since the rape. I said no, but in that second, the expression on his face told me that that was not the right answer. I rephrased, no, don't be silly, of course I have. Yeesh, he responded, turning his beer glass in circles on the table. I wouldn't have wanted to be that guy. What do you mean? It's a pretty big responsibility. You'd be afraid of fucking up. Plus, who knows what could happen? I told him it hadn't been that bad. He asked me how many men I'd slept with. I made up a number. Three. That's a good amount. Just enough to know you're normal. I agreed. We continued to drink. I was alone now. I knew that. If I had told the truth, he would have rejected me. The pressure I felt to get it over with, in my words to Lila, was overwhelming. I was afraid if I went too long, the fear involved in having sex would only increase. I didn't want to be a dried-up old woman, or become a nun, or live in the house of my parents and stare at the wall ceaselessly. These destinies were very real to me. Just before Easter vacation, the night came. Jamie and I went to a movie. Afterward, we got very drunk at the bar. I've got to take a piss, he said, for not the first time that evening. When he was in the men's room, I calculated. We'd been leading up to this point for a while. He'd asked the only question that would act as a restraint. I'd told a lie, and it appeared I'd told it successfully. 
The next day he would take off for a ski weekend, and I'd be alone with myself and with Lila for a few days. He returned to the table. If I get any drunker, I can't drive home, he said. Are you coming with me? I got up, and we walked outside. It was snowing. The fresh bite of snowflakes pelted our booze-warm skin. We stood and breathed in the cold air. Snowflakes gathered on the tips of Jamie's eyelashes and across the ridge of his ski cap. We kissed. It was wet and sloppy, different from Steve, more like Madison. But I wanted this. I willed myself to want it. This is Jamie, I repeated in my head. This is Jamie. So you coming home with me, he asked. I don't know, I said. Well, it's cold as the witch's clit out here. I'm going home. Come or don't come. I have my contacts in, I said. He was smooth and drunk and had done it all a thousand times before. Well, you've got two choices. You can walk home and you can sleep alone in your bed, or I can drive you there and wait for you while you take your contacts out. You'd do that? He stayed outside in his car. I hurried up the elevator in Haven, went to my room, and removed my lenses. It was late, but I woke Lila anyway. I knocked on her door. She answered it in her Lance nightgown. Her room was dark. I had woken her up. What is it? she asked angrily. This is it, I said to Lila. I'm going home with Jamie. I'll be back in the morning. Promise you'll have breakfast with me. Fine, she said, and shut the door. I had wanted someone to be in on it with me. It was snowing heavily now. To stay focused on the road, we were quiet. The heat rushed out of the dash onto my legs. Jamie was my guide on a mission to a place I'd never been. I had one last chance to make it before the walls closed in. His random promiscuity now seemed glorious to me. In the way he had talked about it, I knew there was as much bravado as there was real joy. I realized even then that he'd been drunk during so many of these encounters. He was drunk now, but all of this was detail work to me. Drinking, promiscuity, and undirected life, they were all, to my mind, a product of his own choice. No one had made him drink or fuck or run. Now I can look and see that it may have been otherwise. Then... I stared out at the road. The wipers were going. Snow built up on either side of them and formed a white widow's peak in the middle of the windshield. I was going home with a normal man, by most standards an attractive one, and he was taking me there to make love to me. I'd spent time imagining his place. It was less than fabulous when we arrived. He lived in a one-bedroom apartment, the living area had no furniture, just milk crates jammed with albums and tapes, and a stereo that sat on the carpeted floor. He walked in and threw a school bag down, took a leak with the bathroom door open, from which I looked away, and re-entered the kitchen. There was a let's-just-get-to-it attitude now that we were in his apartment. I stood in the hallway between the darkened kitchen area and the unfurnished living area. His bedroom was near the bathroom. I knew that was where we were going, knew that was what I had come here for, but I hesitated. I was afraid.
You heard her say it again. Called herself a freak. I could be wrong, but the late, great Rick James helped us see the truth. Context of white supremacy. We'll pick up chapter 10 next week. Oh, we're way past the halfway point. Probably three sessions if I had to guess. Three, we should be done. Number to dial 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let's see. I will finish our emails and then get our callers. Let's see. Our investor continue. Let's see. Uh, Number four. So this is all from Chapter 9. I did not want their pity. I wanted to win. Just tell the truth. What it was left up to me to figure out was that if you do that, and nothing else, you lose. This is an admission, rationalization, that she plans to lie. Hmm. Number five, May 8, 1981. It's the writer's opinion after interview of the victim that this case, as presented by the victim, is not completely factual. This writer now realizes that the victim had been through a tremendous ordeal, which would account for her behavior at the time. The initial impression by an experienced investigator, given nearest the time of the incident, seems like it should logically be the most accurate, but again, suspected racists can explain away anything. Number six, I was authentic. I had been a virgin. He had broken my hymen in two places. The OBGYN, J. Marion Sims, J. Marion Sims, oh yes, never mind, would testify to the fact. The serology reports proved that what I had said was not a lie, that I had been a virgin, there's that word again, and that I was telling the truth. My brief internet search suggested that whether the hymen is intact or not is not a reliable sign of virginity. And I don't think there is a laboratory serology test confirming virginity. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Good sleuthing, sir. Chapter 10. Number one. The man and the boys who had just left the room, had raped her for a period of years when she was growing up. When the author discussed the gang rape by fraternity members on Penn's campus, she does not delineate the race of those involved. I would presume they are white. That's the same conclusion. That's the way that I function the whole way through the book. She has identified everybody who was not white. Clearly so even though Latina doesn't really, you know. Two, 
Defendant's pubic hair was found to be consistent with one found in her pubic combings. Partial print on the weapon knife found at the scene sent to FBI. They cannot determine blood type from semen. In 2013, the FBI determined that their hair comparison evidence used in thousands of cases was scientifically invalid and is virtually worthless as a way of identifying someone. Junk science. Number three, my mother joked about the rape might put an end to her lectures on virginity, <laughs> that word again, so she would now lecture me on chastity. I could maybe understand occasionally making light of a horrible situation, but the continual rape jokes in the text seems excessive and concerning for some type of psychopathology. I would agree. Uh, let's see, number four. We got very drunk at the bar, so you coming home with me. Frightened, drunk, and bumbling. My understanding is that you cannot give legal consent for sexual intercourse if you are intoxicated. So could this be considered rape under some certain circumstances? In any event, I found the author's description of this sexual encounter very disturbing. We'll have to see where it ends, but I mean, all this, and it's not like a beer or, you know, a glass of wine or two glasses of wine. You know, it's not like that. Daiquiri, whatever the case, this is like to excess over it. Like she said, drink till we throw up. Drink till I can't drive. Drink till I black out. Like, <laughs> that's what we need to go have sexual intercourse? I might not even remember what we did yesterday. And snorting, see, that's even in the book, all that. Now, I mean, hey, that's Rick James. Show us the way. Let's get to the folks who dialed in. Please don't wait till the last moment. Uh, let's see. Dread138, uh, who volunteered. We'll see if Henry in Chicago has commentary as well. Dread138, did you have commentary, sir? Yes, I did. Um, good evening, Gus. Good evening, callers. Good evening, listeners. I actually had fallen asleep for the first segment, but I'm going to go delve first into um, the second reading uh, with Chapter 10, Maria Flores, the non-white female attempts suicide triggered by Seabold's violent invention fantasy. And then I noted that the campus paper describes the incident as an accident. Only the accurate, accurately reported the following day now, given how poorly campus incidents are inaccurately reported to the present day, this seems significant to me. And then from page 174, but that day, we joked she sure had commented on my poem by jumping and that Tess would have to give her that. Another racist joke, I asked. Seabold is minimizing her treatment of Miss Flores, minimizing her mistreatment of Miss Flores. On the previous change, she states that she resented Miss Flores for not complimenting her poem and working out of a, walking out of a workshop. Workshop. Sipo also managed to center herself in this non this non-white female's traumas. I have more about the the further thing, but I don't want to get too far ahead. I'll meet my line. If there's room, if there's time, I'll share my 
um, observation about nine, eight and nine. I'm here. Uh, might as well go ahead and share them now. I mean, we heard them today, so <laughs> go ahead and get them in. Let's see. Uh, so at, at uh, the preliminaries, uh, the preliminary trial, uh, Mr. Ryan taking particular pains to make sure the defendant is black is put on record, and the coded language she used, uh, she was... Um, unfamiliar about erection, and then she rationalized the absence of her parents, white people don't care about their parents, and they had um, just those cross-examination. The question of um, identification, she offered a description to the police. The person she said she saw with Officer Clark is arrested, but who's to positively identify they're, they're one and the same person? The same time that she took to go off and speak with Professor Wolf, write down the description, present it, and present it to police. What if um, Officer Clapper had interacted with another, nine, uh, another non-white male? Um, and then at the beginning of nine, uh, with the lineup, she did not pick up, uh, pick out Madison slash Broadwater. Um, for some reason, Tebow's description of the line reminded me of her visiting a zoo of aquarium. Five black men lined up for display and study. Uh, the defense lawyers volunteered to let the DA extract the pubic hair by force and to the pleasure of both to 80-day jubilee uh, and Detective Lawrence, not going to pass up an opportunity to mistreat a non-white male. Well, we got the hair of that out of the bastard. And then even after failing to identify Madison Broadwater, it seemed to me that AD, the ADA practiced prosecutorial misconduct by continuously focusing somehow on charging this black male. And then the, uh, the questions from the grand, grand jury seemed to summarize the largest question of the book. Somehow I think this was Seabold's way of distracting or deflecting from her error. And then at the end, even Detective Lawrence wasn't believing her account at the outset. No, really. Much obliged, Dread138. Uh, I'll share a few of my notes and then see if folks have any thoughts that they want to get in before we get ready to wrap it up for today. Uh, let's see. When they go back into the courtroom for the preliminary hearing, the white woman is again told, take as much time as you need. Don't be pressured. No excuse for you to say, oh, I was just rushing. And just, you know, I'm rash. That's what I've been. Uh, 25 civilians, I wish they had given the racial classification of the jurors. That may be in some of the other reports if this was an all-white jury or mostly white jury or how many folks were on the grand jury here. But, man. White people do a great job of keeping black people off of these juries. Uh, let's see. The fact that she doesn't mention, well, yeah, never mind. Um, the virgin comes up as a, as a key part of the testimony even, which just all of that is 
all of that is super suspicious for me because uh, this is just the same trope, the virgin, innocent, pure white woman and the beastly, demonic Negro rapist. Um, and she says, I was aware that night that my that my I was aware my loss that night was my gain today. Having been a virgin made me look good, made the crime appear worse. And I see that's where, you know, the, I think the person who wrote in said, man, it's like she's rationalizing that she's going to lie. Maybe she's lying about all this virginity stuff, too, to just play into that racist trope that, oh, the Negro beast raped a virgin white college student. She's about to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, or something other than a writer of, you know, lies. Uh, let's see. Next. Uh, eventually, it came time for the jurors to ask their questions. I would love that if I can get on the jury and then you can ask questions. Uh, juror, when you saw the police officer up on Marshall Street, why didn't you go to him then? Excellent question that I wish she had answered. Like, man, if somebody had stolen $10 from me and I see them and I'm positive that it's them and it happens to be a police officer there. Matter of fact, like I said, we talked about this last week. Flip this to the other side, even though it's nonsense for her too. If you're a black male, what universe? There's a police officer right next to you. You see a white woman that you've wronged in any way, rape or otherwise. Are you going to stand there and call her out and chit-chat with the police officer right behind? Matter of fact, let's end it this way. In some eras of white supremacy racism, it would have been a crime for Anthony Broadwater to look at Alice Seabold. He wouldn't have had to say anything. We heard a whole lot about reckless eyeballing this week. That would have been enough. He wouldn't have had to say anything. Let's see. She hoped to be judged innocent by them, the virgin white woman. Uh, she was a good girl. Someone asked that before. I forgot who that was. They said, how many times is that in the book? And I said, that phrase, good girls, we were good girls, is in there about 13 times. And, of course, only white girls are good girls. Uh, Wellsing moments, so many of them, she said, she went home after all the prelims, and she called Madison a motherfucker in the privacy of my dorm room, pounded my pillow with my fists. I swore all kinds a bloodthirsty revenge no one thought possible coming from a 19-year-old co-ed. <laughs> None of that is in Lucky. The killer gets away. Rapist and killer gets away. He doesn't even get arrested. There's no sitting around. We're going to chop his testicles off, and we're going to rape him and sodomize him and chop off his ears and slice out his tongue. That's not in The Lovely Bones. White man chilling from beginning of the end, film to the end. Uh, let's see. Oh, I think our investor wrote in about the investor uh, investigator, Lorenz, his original notes from, I guess this is uh, from May 1981. So this is right at the time of the crime. Uh, and he found her testimony not completely factual. Direct quote. I don't either. I wish there were more details because I'm not sure if it's just, oh, she was a little tired. So she sounded sluggish or out of it or, 
incoherent or whatever the case like i know what it's like to to be tired he's an investigator he's been around people who are traumatized why did he think there was something not factual about her testimony uh she says after interviewing kim Childs later the same day he wrote Childs describes their relationship as casual it is still the writer's opinion that there were extenuating cir- circumstances to this incident as reported by the victim and it is suggested that this case be referred to the inactive file and she just chalks this up to he doesn't know how to he can't process a white virgin like really no i don't think that's the case <laughs> i think uh that there are some suspicious things uh, about how all of this has been reported and it's just going to con- oh my god oh my god i haven't even read this before just from reading reports uh, other people since mr broadwater broadwater's exoneration where they read this and even parts at the end were like, this is not believable. I do not believe this. Some of the claims of Alice Sebo that we haven't even got to yet, that involved, ugh. Super freak, Rick James, help us see the way. Uh, Henry in Chicago, anyone else have comments they wanted to get in? Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um. I think a lot of what you said, um, or it was previously mentioned before, uh, I think I, I had it, uh, I had thought the same thing. So uh, what was the racial makeup of the, group, of the grand jury? That was a question I had. And and also Sebo uh, um, calling Madison a motherfucker. I, I wrote that down to Wellesley moment. Um, also the mom uh, joking about the rape. You know, that's, you know, I, I mean, let's just say that, you know, this case was plausible. Like, why would a mother um, choke about or, you know, uh, talk about she has to put it into her lectures on virginity? Uh, I, I, yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of. And then there's Jamie character. Like, uh, you know, he's a piece of work. <laughs> As far as his drunkenness, his problem being so-called, you know, attractive, I guess. But, um, you know, I, I don't know, you know, white people being white people. Uh, but, you know, also, too, as I'm going through this story, I'm thinking about uh, Tawana Brawley. You know, did Tawana Brawley have this type of, you know, benefit of the doubt? Because, you know, after her grand jury, it was immediately released that, you know, she wasn't raped or didn't have, you know, feces put on her or nothing. So uh, I'm pretty sure Tawana Brawley didn't have this type of care that, you know, Alice Siebold is giving us in this story. So, uh, but that's all I have on my line. Tawana Brawley. Oh. Al Sharpton is hated for so many reasons. That is right at the <laughs> beginnings of the Al Sharpton, Al Sharpton hate train. Uh, but man, talk about not being believed and differences. My goodness. That would be a great follow to read. I don't know if we might have folks who are young enough that they have no idea who Tawana Brawley is, why Al Sharpton is hated. 
Uh, let's see. I totally even forgot. I missed the chapter. I was glad we got him in Chicago's additional testimony to make sure I did not miss the last little tidbit before we sign all out. Probably enforcement officers going to arrest raping Negroes right now. Let's see. Just all at the end, like I said, all we got to do is keep reading the book. If you don't like make the connection, super freak, it will become clearer or just more intense as we go. All that at the end, like, man, his random talking about Jamie, random promiscuity, random. I don't even know what that is. What? Random promiscuity now seemed glorious to me. In the way he had talked about it, I knew there was as much bravado as there was real joy. I realized even then that he'd been drunk during so many of these encounters. He was drunk now. But all this was detail work. That is Rick James Super Freak. Very drunk. Not just like I said, it can't just be we had a beer, two beers, we had one glass of wine. No, 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 no. We drank the whole fifth. And why would this make someone be glamorous and attractive? You engaging in all this reckless activity, probably criminal because these folks are underage. This is underage drinking, drinking and driving, snorting so that all their, you know, narcotics and what have you. Let's see. And even she said, she was attracted to Jamie because he ate and belched. He slept around. He lost his virginity way before I had. He was something like 14 and she was older. White people don't care about children. Heard that one said already today. Uh, I never had a chance, he would say. Take a sip of beer from a long neck or, or wine from a glass and snort gleefully. Super freak. Talked about stories about being caught with Married women by their husbands. Super freak. And then that's welding moment too. He said, we were lonely and hated ourselves. Dr. Wilson talked about that. She said that white people do not like their appearance. Melanin deficiency, big part of why they are doing all of this, attacking the non-white people. Uh, let's see. And she said that specifically. I hated the way I looked. I thought I was fat and ugly and weird. Let's see. And even Jamie hanging out with this gay guy, that just sounds like more super freakiness. Like, are y'all all getting, and he's your friend, and you all all drinking together? Are you all in get, man, come on. Come on. And then you do the, I looked him up, virgin, virginity, virginal, chaste, chastity. I told you weeks ago, I said that the very first week we read this, why is the word virgin in here? So why is there so much emphasis on that? And then all of this, oh, my God, all of this is just the innocent purity of white women raping Negroes who need to be killed and castrated. The jokes about the rape, too, all of that, uh, I just, none of that. It either sounds not believable or... I mean, you could say dysfunctional, but I mean, all of these jokes about rape and virginity, like what? Who does that? Uh, and I'm just saying, because I did look at the photos, there's no way from the lineup, Anthony Broadwater, who was in position number four, left to right, 
he is not a dead ringer, as was said, for the black male in position number five. Like, that is absurd. The facial hair looks different. They're not even the same height. You want to talk about physical appearance and what have you? It is a disgrace. Just all the niggers look alike. Yes. Malcolm X, Lil Wayne, they're twins. Yes. Yes. Lapita Nyong'o, Rosa Parks, twin. Exactly like. Yes. Negro. Let me get that one more in. I said, we talked about that. Even though I think it's super important. Retired firefighter pointed out, called him a Negro. I said, she left it. This book was published in 1999. Would have taken it out. Like, hey, we're not, we're not going to call. You just say black. Even if you did say Negro in 81, we'll take it out at 99. She left it in there. Now we get Negroid, and it's in quotes, so like this is official. This is not one of those where I'm offended. I'm not a little child. I'm not sensitive. In my view, all of this all works to the same trope of the raping Negro. This is hearkening back. Negroid, not black, not African-American. Negroid rapist. Negro rapist. That is important. Like I, that is like anachronistic language. Even for the '80s, that is harkening back to what are we supposed to do to a Negro rapist? Negroid. They got it spelled out here. What are we supposed to do to that? That's what I think apart because that hits the brain computer very differently. And again, now, was that going to be in the movie? They're going to identify him as a Negro? A lot of editors looked at this. They could have switched those terms. Nah, leave it in there. 99, leave it in there. Colin Powell, they said could have been president in 99. Negroid and Negro. I will leave it there. We will pick back up next week. Thank you to Rick James showing us the way, and it will get freakier as we go. We will be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, compensatory call-in on Saturday. Much obliged for the folks who tuned in. Uh, apologies for the folks uh, if it was any disruption for people trying to listen in via the phone. Uh, hopefully it will be uh, not repeated uh, tomorrow, figure out what caused the problem. Thank you for your patience. Uh, sobriety would be best. You cannot pull an Alice Siebold and be snorting heroin, drunk off everything, and think you're going to be fine and dandy on the plantation. Never know when it'll be Alice Siebold pointing at you. You robbed us. Or worse, you definitely want a sober, high-functioning brain computer in those situations. In addition to being sober, if you're out and about, you see someone being hostile and rowdy, exit. This is not a time to confront strangers. You should be thinking, hey, they could be armed. Uh, there's been so much craziness over the past two years. Uh, you do not want to be in a confrontation and find out, whoa, assault rifle. I was not prepared for all of that. Yikes. Or, yikes, this person has an entire armed entourage at the ready. I wasn't prepared for that either. All of that said, uh, if you're in a vehicle, you are sober, you're buckled up, and you are not on the cell phone, just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no, and we need all of our attention. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people 
victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>